I grew up as a writer in the 90s thinking I like fantasy. I don't really like epic fantasy, but if I'm not writing books I can concuss a burglar with, then I'm probably not going to have a career. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month, we're getting stuck into some of Pratchett's nonfiction for the first time ever with a slip of the keyboard. Or from the essays that we're going to present to you, you could be forgiven for thinking it's Kevin's book of Neil Gaiman's fantasy. <laughs> you could. Um, and our guest is not, not Neil Gaiman, just to be clear, but it is author, publisher, and role player, Peter M. Ball. Welcome, Peter. Oh, thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Yeah, such a delight. When we started talking about doing nonfiction, you were one of the first people who came to mind. And then as I was thinking in the back of my head, we want to do nonfiction, we should get somebody. You happened to post on Facebook something that day about Terry Pratchett. I'm like, yes, Peter, <laughs> that's who I was thinking of. Always post. Probably one of the only times in the last five or six years I've posted about <laughs> Terry Pratchett. Yeah, always yes, post. it was very, very well-timed. Very Serendipitous. Well-timed. You, now, you were referring to him as someone who clearly knows his work very well, so you've been reading him for a long time. Oh, I yeah. I, I started with Terry Pratchett probably in 1993. 1994, it all blurs together a bit, but I, I very distinctly remember my mother coming back from the shops with two of the Corgi editions of The Light Fantastic and The Colour of Magic, I'm pretty sure acquired from a uh, discount rack. <laughs> and she's kind of going, you like fantasy here? And that was, just, that was just the end of it. It was just kind of like, oh, this is brilliant. This is all the things I love about fantasy, but it's funny. So yeah, that became the start of a very, very long relationship with Pratchett's work. And you, as well as being a writer yourself, you also have done a lot of work on behalf of writers and teaching writers and sort of furthering the understanding, not just of writing in general, but of genre writing in particular. Did you start the convention GenreCon or did you sort of help it along? What was your relationship with that convention? So I was working for the Queensland Writers' Centre in 2011, 2012 era. GenreCon wasn't my idea, was the then CEO at the time, Kate Eltham, but... Kate left the role as CEO very quickly afterwards, so it just kind of became my baby to develop a convention that was all about nurturing the next generation of genre writers and really providing a space where writers could gather and talk about the kinds of conversations that you don't often get in an introductory class. So they could come and talk about industry and technique and you know how the internet is affecting everyone's <laughs> engagement with the business and it kind of took off and ran from there. So I did that for about five conventions and I've done a bunch of other writing related events around that. But these days I'm very much a happy freelancer and publisher where I still kind of keep my hand in. I publish a line of nonfiction titles, which are basically all about capturing some of the great nonfiction that is being written about writing by 
Australian science fiction and fantasy and horror writers over the last sort of two mm-hmm. decades. And that well, I am someone who has a lot of strong opinions about writing books as a result. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And this is what made me think of you in the first place. And I feel like genre con would have been a sort of place where Terry Pratchett would have been like, this is heaven. It would be fantastic. Yes. <laughs> it's like other writers, fans talking about genre writing. This is amazing. Well, I, I think he either would have loved it or would have hated it because he came out of science fiction fandom. And science fiction fandom is a very, very particular thing. And for lots of science fiction writers, our professional development is very tied up in that fan space. So when they came to genre, it was just kind of like, but there's no fans here. I, I can, I can learn things at the sessions instead of having to go to the bar and overhear more established writers talking about this stuff. Uh, I think he, I think he would have dug, dug that. I mean, he, as we're going to delve into with these nonfiction pieces, I mean, he was, he's a writer's writer. Like he got oh, deep definitely. into it. He was one of those authors, you know, who wrote, wrote some books, but didn't really otherwise engage with that industry apart from, can you publish my book? He's like, no, I'm going to write advice. I'm going to be on the board of like the guild. I'm going to do all kinds of stuff. Definitely there to give back to his community. He got right into it. Mm. Oh yeah. Pun intended. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't intended, Liz, but I'm glad that you think <laughs> that I might have been that clever. Before we get too much further and we start discussing these, I should mention what the pieces are that we're reading because a slip of the keyboard is one of two, although there will be a third one now, uh, very similarly titled books. Just today, in fact, uh, we got the news that there will be a new volume of Terry Pratchett's previously uncollected writings that were written under a pseudonym in the 70s and 80s called uh, A Stroke of the Pen. So now there's three books that will have very similar titles so you can confuse. Break my brain. <laughs> yeah, it's not A Stroke of the Pen. It's not A Blink of the Screen. This is A Slip of the Keyboard, the nonfiction anthology. And specifically, uh, we're talking about some pieces that are all in the same first section called A Scribbling Intruder, which is largely about writing, but not just about writing. And the pieces we're going to talk about are Kevin's and Weird Ideas, which are both written for the same publication six years apart, interestingly enough, but they're sort of about dealing with fans. Then we're going to talk about Notes from a Successful Fantasy Author, Keep It Real, and Let There Be Dragons, which are kind of about fantasy as a genre, but from kind of either end, like one's about writing it, one's about reading it, which I thought was really interesting. And then we're also going to talk about, because we're all big fans here, the two Neil Gaiman things in the book, one of which is Neil Gaiman's forward. Uh, but before that, we'll talk about what Terry wrote about Neil, which is a piece he wrote for a convention called Neil Gaiman, Amazing Master Conjurer. So that's what we're going to be talking about. And look, normally when we do short pieces, we do read the kind of introduction. I don't know that we're going to do that because I feel like reading the nonfiction introduction to a nonfiction piece feels like some sort of aerobarous road that I don't want to go down unless in case like I- like a microfiction about each nonfiction? <laughs> is that like how we should- is, is such a thing yeah, possible? <laughs> yeah, he should have written like a drabble about each nonfiction piece. That would have been amazing. So for me, this was the first- I just want to say up front, for me, this was the first time reading some of these. Some of them I'd read in other places or like patched in here and there, but there's so much- cross-pollination between these stories. Like, there's so many connections. Every so often you'd, like, see something from one of the other ones pop in, and I was just like that Leonardo DiCaprio meme, like, pointing at the screen, being like, oh, it's like <laughs> seeing one of your favourite actors do a cameo or, like, Better Call Saul being a whole new spin-off series. It's just, And then you see one of the Breaking Bad characters pop up. It was very much like that, so I just felt like I needed to put that up front. I think, yeah, there's a lot of things that I think he became famous for saying 
particularly on the subject of writing and fantasy, that you see come up again and again in this book. And we know that as a writer, he also was a big one for reusing ideas. Like our last episode, we just discussed Rince Mangle, The Gnome of Even More, which is an early short story that was pretty much entirely recycled into an actual novel. <laughs> you know, you see that a lot in his ideas with jokes, with his ideas, with his plots, and here with like things that he thinks about writing. But you see, he, you know, it's not exactly the same. He iterates it. He gets better, gets more in depth. It was like seeing Kevin pop up into somewhere else when he'd explained it in depth in another one. It's just kind of like this beautiful sort of like (laughs) peak and tide, like a bigger thing. Yeah. It's like the uh, the Terry Pratchett non-fiction universe. Extended universe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But let's start with this um, pair of of writings about fans and and dealing with fans. The first one is is called Kevin's. This was written in 1993 for the author which, by the way, is the Quarterly Journal of the Society of Authors, which is the uh, the Union for Writers and Illustrators in the UK, which Pratchett was pretty heavily involved in for a while. I, don't, I find it very, very hard to separate these two pieces because the thing that fascinates me about them is actually that they are just six years apart and the difference in the world that he's, like the, the world that he's writing into is so pronounced inside of that six years. But they're also... In, ter- in terms of what they are, they're very much Pratchett describing his experience of being an author. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I love collections like A Slip of the Keyboard. When you're a writer, there tends to be this enormous pool of nonfiction aimed at you, but the things that you learn from them tend to be very, very repetitive. Like you can pick up most books on writing and it will be, this is how you plot a story and this is how you generate a character and this is how you put a manuscript together and send it to a publisher. Uh, but increasingly these days, this is how you engage with the internet and, you know, publish things yourselves if that's your thing. But with collections like this, what, and particularly things like the author, which is a market aimed at writers and particularly being a, you know, the, the society of authors, often the entry requirements mean that you're talking to a different class of writers to beginners. So. Collections like this are enormously important for writers because they're your opportunity to get a glimpse of what it means to be a writer rather than a glimpse of how to write. And Pratchett is talking a lot about how he engages with fans and particularly how he engages with fan mail. And that's not something you can ever really put into an introductory writing book because it's so far outside the experience of what a lot of writers are going to need. But within there, there's just kind of all this hidden information that you can slowly start to unpack. It's, it's yeah. an interesting sort of partway point, I think, between what his real life was like, which he very rarely spoke about. He's very private about his family and personal life. And the ideas, he refers to it in several places. He presents himself as an author, as in people point at you and go, "That's that guy's an author. <laughs> I think this, this falls somewhere in between that, which I quite like. I kind of feel like it's a window in, like, it's almost... Like he's sort of, if he's in a cardboard box of his life, he's cutting out a little window flap for you to like quickly look into at a very specific angle and be like, okay, you can see this bit. So like for Kevin specifically, it'd be like my wife would do this lovely intimate thing of bringing me my letters and, and my elevenses. And there's a nice joke about where the term Kevin's comes from, which is um that three of them wrote in one day and she just labeled the folder Kevin's and now that's what he calls his fan mail. And you get a sprinkling of facts, like each of them kind of like the thing that I would bring up at a dinner party regularly, being like, did you know he wrote 200,000 words a year just in fan like responses? Plus like there's <laughs> things about his own correspondence and things. But 
It's just like a glimpse into a very specific niche area of his authorial experience and one that wouldn't be shared widely because like, I don't think that a lot of authors would be able to or be willing to or prioritize responding to their fans this way. And then he sort of dissects why and shows you like elements of his specific experience. And also like in a classic Terry Pratchett style, he has a big old whinge and rightfully so <laughs> because there's a lot of really yes. annoying things that come from it and yet he pushes through it. So, I mean, I see it as kind of a window into his, he's letting you see something, so, but not just for the sake of seeing it so he can get stuck into some of the deeper things underneath it while it's also just still really funny. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, when you think about it, this is 1993, so most people are contacting people still by physical mail. Email exists, but most people aren't using it yet. Uh, you probably don't have an author's email address anyway, but you can get an address at which you can send mail via a fan club or via a literary agent or someone. And or just enough the publisher. people have got that address. Yeah, or just the publisher, you know, because I, I assume they're not sending it to Somerset. <laughs> it's like home address. No. Did, did you ever send fan mail in the pre-internet era? Yes. I did, yeah. One <laughs> or two things, yeah. Katie Holmes never wrote back. It was extraordinarily hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was even harder, like, in Australia because it was expensive to send stuff to, <laughs> you know, the UK or America. And, uh, you know, and I feel really bad that I didn't, I wasn't a big enough fan of any Australian people to <laughs> send them fan mail. I think the, the closest thing I did was write into the ABC about programs that they were airing. Uh, got a letter on Backchat once. It's kind of fame. He's got that thing in there also about like an entire class writing, which I've heard like a few times since like, cause sometimes teacher would be like, let's do this as an assignment. Everyone write to a, not the same author. They'd just be like, write to an author. And in hindsight, that must have just been like a hell of a volume of letters that authors get from people who don't really want to write to them as well, which just adds to it. I, I, I have a very, very small time author compared to Pratchett, compared to pretty much anyone. I'm a very, very small time author. I focus on short fiction, but about eight years ago, a short story that I'd written, not even the full thing, just part of it ended up on year 12 exam prep in, I think, New South Wales, Victoria. And I could, I could always tell when, the, when the classes start because I would get this series of emails. Could you could you tell us what this story is about and you know yeah. what deeper meanings there are? And interestingly, like one of the things I love about Kevin's is you can see Terry Pratchett developing the FAQ before the internet was a big thing. While Pratchett was certainly an early adopter, it should be noted that online frequently asked questions lists date back before 1993, and the format of giving information as a set of answers to commonly asked questions goes back much further, at least the 17th century. The term FAQ was developed for the space mailing list in the early 1980s by Eugene Meyer, a government liaison for NASA. By the early 90s, before the World Wide Web and long before wikis, the FAQ list had been widely adopted on newsgroups as a way of avoiding having the same questions being asked over and over again by those new to the group. Old fan Pratchett didn't have an FAQ as such, but its equivalent was the venerable and famous on this podcast, Annotated Pratchett File, which was first compiled in 1992 and maintained until version 9.0, released in 2006. It's still available at the LSpace web at lspace.org. Yeah, here are the questions I get asked yeah. all the time. This is a standardized thing. And it's essentially what I ended up doing, like, because of books like this. It's just like, this is what happens. You send a letter that say, I'm not here to do your homework. But if you would like some advice, here is the FAQ that you can go 
and it's got all the answers that you are probably looking for. And they're not really going to help you at all because what English teachers look for are not what writers care about at all. But if, it, yeah. if you think it will help, go for it. In one of my day jobs, I work with kids in writing, as regular listeners will know. But that means I've looked up the websites of a lot of children's authors, particularly, and every single one has an FAQ <laughs> that has just exactly the same kind of things in it as uh, Pratchett talks about in Kevin's. It's, uh, yeah, it's universal experience, it seems. Oh, it's just the joke of, like, where do you get your ideas from? From, a, like, was it a warehouse in Croydon? <laughs> He's like, you only say that once and it's only funny once. I'm like, oh, I think it's funny more than once. But Yeah. Well, yeah. The thing is, every writer has made some variation of that joke. It's it, it seems to become this thing where there's this mythology in writing which says you can never talk about where your ideas come from. And I actually find it really quite strange because it contributes an awful lot to this idea that the ideas are the really important bit. Uh, and mm. I, I think this is something Pratchett mm. takes aim at elsewhere in the book. Um, yeah. Whereas I think really you just, you need to kind of be really quite open about the fact that, you know, ideas come from strange places. And mostly it's not about the idea. It's about what you do after you get the idea and how you build it into a story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. My students still find that blows their mind, particularly. I mean, these are students who, who write in comedy, particularly that I'm talking about. So, they, you know, because the joke is like, I want to write a joke that no one's ever written before. They feel like that's really important. I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> you cannot write a joke that no one has ever written before. You can write a new version of a joke that no one has ever heard before. But there's too many jokes that have been done. It's not about the idea. It's about the execution. It's about what you do with it, how you make it real. Yeah. I've heard that's why Cocaine Bear isn't very good. Like there's there's things that should be funny, but they're delivered terribly, so it just isn't good. <laughs> no. Is that not the point of that film? <laughs> no, I, I have not to be- seen it, but it, it surely the basic premise of like a bear has taken too much cocaine and goes on a killing spree should like you, the joke should just come, but apparently it's just very flat. So like, right? Yeah. I, I- so like delivery matters. It's not just idea. <laughs> I, yeah. I can totally understand this. So. One of the things that's really interesting is what, when Pratchett's talking about fantasy in one of the later pieces, he talks about the necessity of taking it seriously. You mm. can you can do pretty much anything you want in fantasy so long as it is inherently taken seriously. And whenever I read that, I think of the Sharknado franchise um, because <laughs> if you go back and like if you go back and watch Sharknado one. Which I do from time to time. It is very much a part of how I met my wife and we ended up getting married. Um, mm. But if you go back and watch Sharknado 1, it is very, very internally consistent. No one treats the Sharknado like it's a joke. Sharks are falling from the sky and it is terrifying for them. We think it's funny as hell, but because all the actors are playing it straight and when characters die, it is treated as a serious and mournful thing. And the film uses that to get completely absurd. Like, you know, it is characters flying through the air and diving through shark mouths with chainsaws. But that absurdity works. But you, you fast forward to, you know, Sharknado 3, which has this problem where a character dies and someone makes a Star Wars reference. And as soon as you've done that, you've lost the audience. You've, you've, you've given away the fantasy because now it's not we're laughing at how seriously that we're taking this. The world's no longer internally consistent. You're just going, oh, isn't it funny? And as soon as you go, oh, isn't it funny? It's just like, oh, it's not fun anymore. Mm. No, it's like, not. You know, yeah. You know, so I can totally yeah. see Cocaine Bear having a similar sort of issue of just kind of like, 
it's a bear with cocaine. Isn't it great? And you're just kind of, yeah. No, no, I just want to see the bear with cocaine kill a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I do like that as well as explaining why they're called Kevins. He then spends a lot of this piece breaking down what kind of letters do I get and how do I deal with them? And there's the aforementioned school kids asking questions, but there's also lots of other stuff, including just fans asking him if he can write something in particular or can I get an autograph or as he is very bemused by, can I get an autographed photo? <laughs> He's like, I'm an author. Why do you want a picture of me? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> I really like the insight into how many different types of readers he had and also how that clashed mm. with the outside perception of who was reading him, which is a theme that comes back in quite a few of the pieces. Because even people writing me like, I bet you don't get a lot of letters from 75-year-old grandmothers. He's like, yes, I do, actually. <laughs> There's that sort of like really nice side of like when authors are asked to list like what they're reading at the end of the year and the end of year roundup lists. He's like, oh, we know you've all been reading the airport like mega blockbusters that we all read, but they sort of scramble around frantically to be like, what are five smart books that I can just quickly list? And so the idea of like, what's okay to be seen reading versus what you actually enjoy reading. I enjoyed that as kind of a core of a lot of these pieces, actually. Yeah. That kind of literary snobbery kind of Mm. thing. It's also really interesting given how much both Kevin's and Weird Ideas talks about this idea of ownership of an author and particularly mm. for writers who have come out of that fan space where there are like when I first discovered Pratchett as a teenager on the Gold Coast in the 90s I had no idea there was such a thing as organized fandom it was you know 2007 before I realized that there was a distinction between the capital F fan who is someone who goes to conventions and does these things and the lowercase fan that is just kind of like I just I just read the books and really really like them the Gold Coast is very, at the time, was very much a monoculture. Finding other people like Terry Pratchett was, you know, something to be treasured and very, very rare. Mm. But it's, it's, I always look at these and come back to what are the writing lessons here? And one of them is there is an audience for your work that is going to be really overt and obvious, but it's very easy to get lost in the echo chamber. One of the things I did notice when I did start engaging with big capitalist fandom around 2007, 2008, that the people who are incredibly passionate and, you know, there is kind of a taste making aspect of what they do where the works that have popularity in that space do tend to get a wider readership, but they're not the entire readership of any kind of author. If you are an author and you're only really selling into this kind of very select identity of fandom, then you're working on numbers that most publishers will kind of look at and go, yeah, but we kind of want to find other people that are going to read this, you know. <laughs> we want, we just want to yeah. keep going a little bit of a larger audience, you know, because it's all going to come down to numbers in the end. So it's a really quite comforting thing because you kind of like the audience that you think you have is always larger than you assume. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think when Pratchett started, like fantasy wasn't brand new? But it was at a time when fantasy was kind of starting to take off a bit, you know, like particularly in like the seventies and like, like the impact of Tolkien was undeniable yeah. from the fifties, but there weren't heaps of other people trying to write the next big fantasy novel until, you know, probably the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Well, it, fantasy changed. Like fantasy had always been around. There is a history of fantasy that is very much descended from Tolkien, but then there's, a history of fantasy that's descended from sort of pulp authors and Conan mm-hmm. the Barbarian and Sword and Sorcery. What you're sort of talking about in that period of the 80s and 90s is this period where 
epic fantasy eclipsed everything else in the genre. You know, if you were not like, I grew up as a writer in the 90s thinking, I like fantasy. I don't really like epic fantasy, but if I'm not writing books I can concuss a burglar with, then I'm probably not going to have a career. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, you, you better figure out how to write a 300,000 word novel and then make it a trilogy. Like that was just the default expectation of the genre. Oh, man, I never got into those books. Like I remember when I worked at a bookshop, so I got into Patch at about the same time as you. And then I ended up working in a bookshop during my last few years of high school. And this is on the far north coast of New South Wales. So not a dissimilar kind of culture to the Gold Coast, <laughs> just a much smaller place with fewer people. But I had a friend who worked there who convinced me to read The Wheel of Time, the first one, The Eye of the World. And I just, I, I bounced off it so hard. And I thought I was a big fantasy reader, but I really, I come from like Pratchett, and this is one of the things I love about these pieces too. Is he talks about how when he was young, he didn't, it wasn't fantasy in the modern sort of high fantasy sense that he read so much as science fiction, and that's where I started as well. I used to be a big science fiction reader, and as I've gotten older and I've sort of kept reading, I've sort of drifted more into the sort of urban fantasy and traditional fantasy, I guess. Uh, but I never got into that sort of epic fantasy stuff for some reason. It just was not my bag. But anytime I saw something that said, like, you know, the first book in the Chronicles of blah, I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to go there. And Discworld always felt different to that. You have no idea how even rare that was. Because if you go back and look at books from the 90s, it took something extraordinary before someone would actually acknowledge that there was, you know, this was book one of a series. Mm. Because books have a 30 to 60 day sales cycle. And unless you're a perennial bestseller, mm. your book comes out, it's in stores for that long. And older fantasy fans will remember that pain of like, I missed book three of the trilogy and now I'm going to spend the next 10 years looking in secondhand bookstores to find, find that final copy, you know, and I can still remember the revelation it was when I could finish off a trilogy by going, Oh wait, I can just, I can probably just order that book from Amazon. Like it was just this huge moment of like, <laughs> I never, like, what happened? What strange new world is this? So, yeah, it's very much a weird space where you would always know it was a trilogy because that's what fantasy was. And they had the same kind of art on the cover and the same kind of fonts, but very, very few of them would actually acknowledge that it was a series in any of the kind of, I'll use the publisher term, metadata around the book. And I've read essays in library studies journals, which were all about trying to negotiate this, like, so there are all these series that would be really useful for us to be able to track these series because readers will want to continue on the series. We need to know that it's all there. But publishers just aren't providing the information in any service that we use. And that kind of was the status quo until the internet came along and changed everything. Yeah, which I, I feel is a great segue into, yeah, Weird Ideas, which is published, you know, six years later in 1999. Huge change in how people communicate with Terry Pratchett. He still gets mail, still does get physical mail, but now he also gets emails and he's on the internet actually posting on Alt Fan Pratchett. And my time on that news group just a little bit overlaps with when he was still there. I got into news groups in about uh, 96, I think, 96, 97. So it was just before he left, basically. <laughs> Um, and every now, and I don't think I was ever part of a thread that he commented on, but every now and then I'd go on there and I'd see that he had posted something. And I was like, whoa, it's Terry Pratchett. <laughs> I'm going to read what he said. 
Uh, because also, you know, I was looking at it in daytime hours in Australia and he was looking at it in daytime hours in the UK. So, we never met that way. But yeah, this is a very different tone because Kevin's is all, these are the kinds of stupid questions that people ask me. Like, how do you get published? And um, can you fix Granny Weatherwax's grammar? Um, and, <laughs> and I love that in Kevin's, he kind of illustrates the stupidity of these questions. Like, he's just having a whinge, as you said, Liz. But he's, he illustrates what he thinks mm. of these questions by posing a similar question to, like, you know, a classic author. Like, dear Sir Arthur, why not bring Sherlock Holmes back to track down Jack the Ripper? And he's like, <laughs> don't make that suggestion. And I like that he's comfortable putting himself in the same bracket as Arthur Conan Doyle. I think that's appropriate. And Jane Austen. That's true. Yeah, it's not just him. There's others as well. But then when he gets into weird ideas, six years later- it's all about the emails and the problems of the letters that he gets are quite different now. Yeah. It's, I, I'm fascinated by this one. Like in a lot of ways, Pratchett is an author who came of age with the internet. Mm, yeah, definitely. One of the things that gets thrown around in sci-fi circles is this idea that you're not really established as an author until you're about five to 10 books into your career, which is always a useful thing to keep in mind. Cause in Australia, we, we love this thing where like first time authors are like, I can't make a living from my, from my writing. You're like, yes, because you're, you're buying books short. But- <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've only published one book. You're only going to sell so many copies of that. Buddy. Yeah, like you, you probably need a few more, but five to ten books is about the point where if there are people who are following you from book to book, they're yours. They're going to follow you from book to book. And a publisher can look at you and go, okay, if we publish one of your books, we can reasonably expect to sell X number of copies. And then all we need to do is expand on that. And it makes it really, really easy. And if you look at Pratchett's publishing timeline, he starts publishing in, well, he starts publishing Discworld in about 88, which is very much the era of, you know, BBSs. And, you know, there is this small group of people who are online who, you know, to stereotype a little, are probably his target audience, you know, a very small part of it. But as he starts hitting five books and 10 books, you're hitting that point right as the World Wide Web really lands and people are starting to ask what we can do with this. So one of the things that has always impressed me about Pratchett is he's one of sort of about three or four authors that I tend to look for to figure out how do you engage with fans. And he's done a really good job of figuring out how to use the internet in that space. Mm. You know, he's active in his news groups, had websites, did all these kinds of things, had his email in public, which is something that is still enormously contentious mm. In writing spaces. Although as someone who has run a convention or two in my time, I love authors that put their contact details on their website. It makes life so much easier. Every now and then you kind of have conversations. People like, I'm not getting invited to conventions and invited to do this writer stuff. And I'm like, is it easy to contact you? Can I email you and ask? And they're like, no. Well, if you're asking me to go through your agent. If you can't be asked, you can't get. I even get sort of put off by contact forms as well. Like, cause I just have this, I don't know, doom and gloom attitude that you're typing into a contact form and it just sends it straight into a internet version of a shredder. Yeah. <laughs> cause you can't see it in your sandbox yeah. or anything. I'm just like, yep, just, it's just like hurling it like out your window from a piece of paper and just hoping for the best. Yeah. I, I mean, on my website, I'm, I'm not an author, but I, on my website, I have both. And yeah, not many people use the form. I should probably just get rid of it. I don't know why I've still got it there, to be honest. Habit. Isn't someone I knew was saying that they didn't realize that their form was sending to some weird folder or some weird inbox. They weren't getting any of their contact things as well, which is again, that like internet oh, no. version of a shredder. 
it's astonishing the amount of work you can get as a writer if you just do this really basic thing of ads your email. <laughs> like you just, it's so basic and yet <laughs> so many of us are bad at it. Yeah. When I first read this piece, because you talk about how you really knew how to handle fans, and I think that's true, but also reading weird ideas, it starts off with like the most broad parody of like internet late speak you could possibly think of and what people on the internet are like. Um, and, and I'm like, oh no, come on, Terry. No, you, you posted in like fan forums about video games and stuff. What? Come on. <laughs> this is you. You're talking about you. Yeah. A cool dude. But he's not talking about him. Consider his audience. Like this is the, this is the trade arm of the Society of Authors in the UK. So mm-hmm. that's an organization that has a very, very broad church. He's not talking to a group of science fiction fans that are all about the internet all the time. You know, he is talking to, you know, this broad spectrum that's going to include, for better or worse, a very large number of people who are very, very down on the idea of the internet and really do think that everyone on the internet is, you know, speaking in emoji and refusing to actually engage with the English language. So there are some points in here where I think you do have to consider the context. Like he is writing for a group of authors and authors, particularly established authors, tend to be older, tend to be conservative about the English language, conservative about technology and the English language. And you can still see it today, like even when they're all online. This suspicion of technology is kind of one of the hallmarks of being a literary author in this day and age. Like Jonathan Franzen, who is famously not on the internet, is kind of routinely hailed as one of our last great literary writers. So, you know, that's, oh. that's the author that this is for. It's like, come on, friends, and it's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, famously not on the internet, but also equally famously one of the major supporting characters of the comedy podcast, The Beef and Dairy Network, <laughs> which is hilarious. That is the only context, really, in which I know Jonathan Franzen, um, <laughs> where he's like this playboy millionaire. If you've never heard the Beef and Dairy Network listener, it's look, it's a very <laughs> peculiar thing, but it's worth a go. Pratchett's really, he's ahead of his time here. Like, he's talking to his peers ostensibly, mm. but he knows way more about this stuff than most of them do. You know, having been someone who was, a you know, a tragic tech nerd all of his life, loves computers, loves gadgets, loves whatever the newest thing is that the internet can do up to a certain point. It makes sense that he's the one writing about this to all the other authors, you know. This one made me really sad that we don't get a a Terry Pratchett opinion or a speech about things like chat GPT because I think mm. he would have had some really interesting things to say about it. And like reading this, I was kind of like, what would he have offered up into the conversation about AI and writing? Yeah. I actually think he's offered up kind of a solution in that space where he talks about, I think it's in Kevin's, this idea that the letter is an affirmation. He exists, therefore I exist. And it's a really interesting thing. Like, writing is grappling with this idea of technology far later than a lot of other art forms. I can remember many, many years ago um, when I was at university, one of my lecturers posed the question, in a world where you can fire up a computer, go to a library, go to a gift shop, and get a perfect recreation of the Mona Lisa, what is the value of the original painting? Why is it still desirable to you know, fly to a museum and stand in its presence? And I think Pratchett sums that up really, really nicely. This exists, therefore I mm. exist. 
And it's all about the, like the touch of the artist. You know, we don't want the works we love to emerge out of nowhere. We want them to be the product of labor and we want them to be the product of a controlling mind. And this doesn't mean that the presence of AI writing isn't going to change things, but art and music and theater to a certain extent have all had to grapple with this far earlier than we have because writing has always been a business that thrives on recreation. You know, someone invented the printing press and we went, right, standing in front of someone and telling a story verbally, that's that, that's for the birds. Let's just, you know, print me 3,000 copies of that and get it into as many hands as possible. So that, that idea of the touch of the connection kind of got lost there. But with AI writing, there is the space for it to come back. Writers will hate it because it means they're going to need to start thinking about themselves as personalities and people that readers engage with rather than just these disembodied people that are going to put things on the page. But you can look to writers like Pratchett as examples of how this is done because he was so good at it. More signed yeah. photos. More signed photos, but even more just, you know, <laughs> you are you are a nurturer of your audience. You you are tending to mm. their needs in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the product is no longer just the story. It's the story that you're reading, but it's also the story of the person who created it and, you know, what their personality is like. We can get on to Neil Gaiman a bit later is another great example of someone who's probably a fairly early adopter of that. You know, like he was out there at conventions. He was enmeshed in the scene. He had a style and a look and he talked about his craft and he talked to people and he loved me, you know, and he got out there. And so, you know, if you were a fan of his work, you kind of became a fan of him as a person as well in a similar way, I think, to the way people feel about Terry Pratchett. And there's an element of that, like he touches on in Kevin's with all sort of genre authors, particularly sci-fi and fantasy authors, where people do feel like this guy's ours. <laughs> um, and you see that, I mean, you see the dark side of that now with the sort of levels of fan entitlement about TV shows and films where when the producers or writers or directors make a decision that some people don't like, they're like, you can't do that to my story. And they're like, no, I can. It's actually my story. Um, if you don't like it, that's fine, but you're not paying millions of dollars to make it happen <laughs> or putting in the sweat and tears to write the script or direct the show. And that's kind of the darker side of that. And then, you know, there's also the middle part of this is that people don't think about the reality of who that person is. So they might be a fan of Terry Pratchett as a person and of his work, but they don't think, well, what does that mean though? Like, what is a commercial relationship here? <laughs> And is there a problem with me just sending him my ideas for Discworld stories? Because that's what, you know, Weird Ideas ends up being mostly about is, you know, his exit from being as online as he used to be. And this was something that at the time, like it was one post, someone speculating that in his next book, maybe Vimes might become a father. And he was writing The Fifth Elephant at the time where we find out that Sybil is pregnant. And he's like, look, this is a pretty obvious thing for someone to come up with as an idea. It makes sense from the things that I've written before, but, you know, I can't be here for this because someone eventually will go, you stole my idea. <laughs> and he says all the things in that post in a lot briefer form that he says in this piece for the author. But in that case, he's saying it to his audience of fans yeah. and explaining like, I, this is not, and, he, and he's quite polite about it. You know, he's direct, but polite. He's like, this is not mean, you know, I'm not upset. But this is just how it has to be. I can't be on here anymore. Sorry, guys. And then there's some upset from other fans, like getting upset with the people who have speculated, despite the fact they keep asking people not to. Um, but yeah, he's very polite about it. 
I do love that he just says though that every crowd there's a twerp. Like it's basically like yeah. if we could if people could be sensible <laughs> about things and also that the the thing about like as we were talking about earlier, the idea is good, but what matters more is making that idea into something complete and putting in the work and the hours and the like myriad tiny ideas that come after that. But people won't always get that and that's where the problem lies in some of this as well. Like Seven people, like a hundred people come up with the same idea. Ten of them might sit down to write a book and they'll end up with very different books, even if it came from the same place. But a lot like the twerp or the, a few people won't realize that. And that kind of creates issues that get in the way of him creating things. And that's a shame. Yeah. And this goes back to that idea, the mystique of the idea as being the be all and end all of, of creative work means that people think that's the important thing. The, the thing that you have to start deconstructing at the beginning of every writing class. Yeah, <laughs> just- absolutely. And it's interesting that I don't know that he he doesn't touch on that so much in weird ideas. He sort of he sort of talks about similar ideas. He talks about the people not understanding copyright. There's that great bit where he says, <laughs> "Some people ask me, is it okay if I name my cat after your character?" <laughs> and other people are like. I just took your story and published it on the internet. Is that, mm. I hope you don't mind. And you're like, yes, of course I mind. That's my copyrighted work. And I, it's interesting to me that I think the internet was a driver of this in some ways. Like I think there, maybe not in 1999, but I think now there's a lot of people who've grown up with this idea that, well, anything I want to find is just freely available on the internet. And I can just take it and use it because it's there and there's nothing to stop me. So it must be okay. And you're like, no, you can't, you can't. Yeah. That's not how copyright works. It's an interesting problem to solve. Mm. I'm not entirely sure that it is the internet's fault. Mm. I have been around and teaching writing since the, you know, the internet was a very, very new idea. And right from the beginning, um, the absolute worst thing you could ever hear was the, the person who come up with, come up to you and go, so I have this book and it's utterly unlike anything else out there in the world. It is utterly unique and original. And it's always heartbreaking when someone says that because your first response is like, oh, it's really, I, I can guarantee you that it's not like, unless you have that been, can't possibly be true. Unless you have been raised away from all stories, <laughs> then, you know, you're going to be influenced by something. But the other part is like, if you go to a publisher and I, you know, I say this as someone who still gets these emails as a publisher and they go, you know, I have written something that is utterly unique and unlike anything else in the world. I'm like, I, I, I don't know how to find the readers for that. I'm sorry, like, come to me and say, you know, here's my, here's my space opera in which all the alien races are lemmings. I'm like, I can do something with that because I know how to find space opera people and I know how to find lemming people. And once I find the crossover, I can sell some books. But you know, the, uh, the utterly unique thing that exists outside of genre conventions, like, that's an impossibility. Like, I can't do anything with it. I don't know how to sell it. And if I don't know how to sell it, I can't reasonably publish it. But. The interesting thing about writing is everyone just kind of assumes it's the one space where you're never supposed to make business decisions. Writers are meant Mm. to do this because they love it. And one of the things I love about Terry Pratchett is he's very good at navigating that kind of space. I did this because I loved it, but it just kind of made some money by accident. Yeah. You know, you know, I exist in a capitalist yeah. world where monetary worth tells me how successful I've been and what the quality of my work is, but I can't possibly acknowledge it. And it's a really delicate line to navigate. Yeah. I mean, he's quite upfront about that. I mean, when you look in his biography, there's there's stories about this. Like the reason he kept writing Discworld books is that he realized that when you write books that are set in the same world and they're effectively a series, when you publish a new one, 
that also drives sales of all the old ones. <laughs> so you can, you publish one book and you sell five. It's like, it's a money making machine. That's what I should do. And that was very much a part of his decision to do that. And of course it is, you know, like you want to, if you want to keep doing the thing, it's got to be sustainable. It's got to be mm. successful. And here we are 20 years later and every independent author is doing exactly that as their business model. Yeah. 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 I mean, you go back to history and it wasn't that different, you know, like for someone like Jules Verne or um, Victor Hugo or, you know, those writers of that era, uh, or even, you know, Conan Doyle, they were either writing short stories that they could get published every month. So that it was a guaranteed paycheck for them because the Strand wanted the next Sherlock Holmes story, right? Or they were serializing something and they strung that book out for as long as they could because that meant they got paid every month for the next part of The Count of Monte Cristo to come out. That's why it's 17,000 pages long. Because the longer it was, the more you could get paid for it. My favorite one is Alexander, is it Dumas or Dumas, who did the Three Musketeers? Uh, I think it's Dumas, yeah. I think it's Dumbass. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. How dare you? He, he was paid by the line rather than by the word, which is why there is so much dialogue in the stories uh, and why so much of it is, would you like a cup of tea? What? Tea? Would you like some? And he's like, oh, <laughs> you are a mad genius and I love you. Wow. I love I love him so much. I do. I do. I mean, mostly for Monte Cristo. The, the three musketeers are jerks. But that does mean that they spend a lot of time acting like jerks, which means they do have a lot of short dialogue, which now I understand better why that is the case. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's so good. You know, the thing that he also articulates in this is that it's not just that people will say these things, give ideas out, and then, you know, maybe it's something he was thinking of doing, but that, you know, he's got quite a... Uh, I don't want to say pessimistic, but I guess I guess realistic idea of the world because he says things like, and if you think no one would say this, then you haven't met people. And if you think that's not a problem or that newspapers wouldn't publish a story about that, then you haven't met any journalists. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, you know how the world works and sometimes it's not that shiny. But uh, And he knows how a newspaper works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's on the inside of that one for sure. Was he a journalist? Or, like I know he did- he was. He was a journalist. Yeah. So, he, he did several jobs at newspapers. So, he wrote short fiction. He was a cop- uh, not a copy editor. He was a- He's not a sub-editor because he, like, had a bit of a scathing line about sub-editors in his book. It's oh, like they're the right. ones who mess about with your work and make it worse, which is, <laughs> I do not think is true, but he, um, it was, it was a fun line to read in his biography. Yeah. The ones yeah. who mess he- up all your copy and, and put it in the paper, but yeah. Yeah, but he did a few different jobs, uh, but he was definitely a journalist as mm. well as working in other jobs. Like he worked in PR for the, um, for the electricity board, um, as well. So yes. Yeah, um, I did enjoy like, cause he has a lot of pointed things to say about newspapers scattered throughout as well. He's like, <laughs> oh yeah, this person said that, but he's a Sunday Times man. So of course he, of course he did. <laughs> or the, yeah. the literary editor only, um, publishes this many like children's books and they carefully put a teddy bear on there to show like it's, it's a fun, oh, not yeah. serious thing. Like, just, <laughs> just a lot of little tiny, like, drive bys. Yeah. One thing that I do think is worth touching on in regards to his ideas about fanfic is again, this was written in 1999. Uh, and in 1999, the space in which fanfic existed is very, very different to the way in which it does in 2023. Like, yes. 1999 fanfic has just stopped being this thing that existed in fanzines because people have figured out they can share it on the world wide web. Mm. Yeah. And so when someone comes up and goes, I've been writing this fanfic of this character doing this thing, then obviously it's news because it's, it's this weird hobby that no one has actually heard about yet. Whereas now 
24 years later, you have an archive of their own and all these kinds of spaces. And you have quite high profile fanfic authors who have gone on to become mega selling authors of their own original works. Like it's, it's a very different kind of conversation now. I'm not sure that authors do need to be quite as stringently like, I will never look at fanfic ever. Uh, you know, there mm. are great arguments for not necessarily engaging with it. One of which is you don't want someone else's ideas of your character in your head when you're writing. Like, you know, there are lots of writers who are quite yeah. guarded about their process, but I do think we're in a different space with regards to fanfic than we were 24 years ago. I, yeah. I did find myself very surprised when he wrote that fanfic is unique to fantasy and science fiction as far as I know. Like, there's a qualifier as far as I know, but, like, as far as I know, like, it was quite widespread. Like, I remember reading nanny fanfiction in the 90s, like, about the TV show The Nanny and, like, going to my friend's house and writing our own, like, weird stories about, like, Hans and the band doing stuff. Like, so I was surprised that someone who was so online of the era would think that. Hmm. I think partly that is what Peter's talking about is that in the 90s, it was still the case that that was very compartmentalized. Like there was no central repository for fan fiction where you could see a list of genres and characters and real people um, who might appear in them. And you could find without having to, you know, specifically search for it, that there is fan fiction about Australian parody group, The Chaser, like that that exists on the internet. <laughs> um but you wouldn't know that in the 90s unless you were going on the websites that were about those topics. So if you mm. were only going on to science fiction and fantasy websites, you would never know that fanfic for like, you know, romance fiction or bands or anybody else exists. Yeah. So I can see that. It's just a strange assumption to make though, to me. Well, I mean, if you know the history, if, if like Pratchett, you came out of that history of fandom, like sci-fi and fantasy fandom, you could be forgiven for thinking it because that, you know, that is kind of where it started. Or at least certain types of it started anyway. I mean, I, I, you could probably make some, and I'm sure some academics have made some arguments that fan fiction's a very old practice indeed. <laughs> and fandom is very fond of thinking, this is this thing that we do and it is our thing, you know. And oh, yeah. People who do not, other people do not do this thing, just kind of like read books and get enthusiastic about them. No, they do. I've met, I've met romance readers. You know, I have been oh, in yeah. Georgia, been in Georgia Hay book clubs. I've seen the enthusiasm. Mm. Um, well, look, I, I think we should move on to talking about the genre of fantasy itself, both from a reading and writing perspective in these next couple of pieces. Notes from a successful fantasy author, Keep It Real, and Let There Be Dragons. And uh, the one for writers, uh, Notes from a Successful Fantasy Author, was published in the Writers and Artists Yearbook, which I had never heard of before reading this collection. What an amazing sounding book. Like, this is the kind of thing I wish I had had as a younger person. So it's this annual publication. It's published by a publishing company in the UK now, but it's, it's been around for like over a century. And it's just, a, it's basically a list of contact details and advice on how to get published and what to do as a writer. Like the kind of advice you were talking about, Peter, but because it's annual, they take it a bit further and they publish stuff like what Terry Pratchett is writing here. So it's not just how to construct a story and how to, you know, submit a manuscript. It's also stuff like these notes about how to write fantasy. And, oh, what a... I, look, I don't know that I've got a favourite of these pieces. They're all very good, but I do really love this one. Not least because 
he agrees with some of the advice I give when I'm teaching <laughs> writing. And that was, that was very, I don't know when I first read this, but I, I clearly, some of it went deep into my subconscious <laughs> because there's stuff in here that I, I often tell people, but, you know, put in a much, much better Pratchetty way. But now these quotes from this are going to turn up in my lectures. <laughs> it's going to be great. I'm obsessed with use adjectives as if they cost you a toenail. <laughs> <laughs> That is incredibly good advice. Adjectives and exclamation yeah. marks. Like the two things, if, oh, you can, yeah. if you can stop yourself from using them early, it saves all sorts of pain. Well, see, for me, some that, that one particularly rang true for me because I do a lot of work with very young writers and some of these things are things that they are taught to do when they're first learning to write because, you know, bless a lot of, uh, this is not meant as a dig. If you're a primary school teacher, please know that I say this with love, but primary school teachers have to teach everything. And there's always areas of expertise where they feel uncomfortable. And a lot of the time for a lot of teachers, and this is why I have one of the jobs that I have, uh, one of those areas is creative work because a lot of them are not creative in the ways that you have to teach children to be creative. Like they're not writers in their spare time. It's not something that they know how to do or that they are enthusiastic about doing themselves. And that makes it hard because particularly if you only have that sort of reader knowledge of of what writers are like and you've been to a writing festival, so you think ideas you know, are like golden apples that only grow on a tree once a century, then it's a mysterious and opaque process and you don't know how to unpack it or teach it. And it's very difficult. And so, you know, some of the things that end up getting taught as a result are like, yeah, put more description in. And that translates to put in 17 adjectives, (laughs) use a different word for said on every single line of dialogue, Um, all that kind of stuff that when you read it, exactly like what Pratchett is talking about in this essay, just makes it sound... Or so inauthentic and dis- disingenuous in a way. Like, you know, you're not really telling me a story. You're just putting words in front of my face. Can I just quickly do a aside? Because, like, my year four teacher was actually very good at writing. I think that was a passion of hers. And she gave me a piece of oh, advice that I still use every time I'm writing something now, which is do not let consecutive paragraphs start with the same word. And if possible, make them all start with a different word. And so many times I find myself starting with the same word and then going back through and changing it. And that's been solid advice. So if anyone out there would also like that advice, please have that from Mrs. Closey, who um, I wrote a letter to after I graduated saying, thank you for that. I use that every day. So, yeah. Oh, that is good advice. I do like that one. I should say not all the advice you get in primary school for writing is bad, but I think a lot of it is. We learn habits then that are quite hard to unlearn if you are trying Mm -hmm. to be a professional writer and- get better at the craft you mm. can safely forget a lot of it just yeah. start from scratch yeah, exactly and if you and if you are a primary school teacher or anyone who's teaching kids how to write you could do worse than starting by reading this essay <laughs> by Terry yeah. Pratchett. it's got a lot of great advice because kids write fantasy fiction you know he talks a lot in the next essay we're going to talk about uh, let there be dragons about kids wanting to read it but when you when you tell them you can write it i mean so often and this is something again something from my professional life Kids don't want to write in school. It's because they're being asked to write about the most boring shit imaginable. <laughs> and when you say you can write about whatever you want, you get all this amazing stuff. Like you get cool stories about exploding evil toasters and like the weird man who lives in um, the post box. I'm trying to think of examples, but I can't uh, think I of any. I want to read about right the weird man who lives in the post box. <laughs> yeah, like just just really strange stuff that's sort of. A, a strange remix of things that they've seen and read and overheard and new ideas that have come from some weird place and that you've never seen before and will never see again. Like, just incredible stuff. 
And it's the same for reading and writing. Like, you know, if you let your imagination loose, that's where you have the most fun, you know? Yeah, I, I do like the thing in here about internal logic that we talked about earlier, like in the context of Sharknado, because it is really important to have stakes with vampire stories and also in my stories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Peter, this might be one you can answer. Is EFP, so this is a term that Pratchett uses in this essay, yep. uh, which is short for extruded fantasy product, which is a, a short and highly derogatory phase re- referring to anything that is clearly just, I read Lord of the Rings once and now I've written a fantasy book and it's, it's, it's cool because it's just like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> um, did he originate that? Where does that term come from? I, it feels like an old school fandom term to it me, does- but I hadn't heard it before. I don't entirely know. I, I have a sneaking suspicion it may come from the Turkey City lexicon, which is a collection of terms put together by a science fiction and fantasy writing group back in the days when science fiction and fantasy writing groups and fandom were very closely enmeshed, mm. where they would create a shorthand for terms and things that people did in science fiction stories so you could go it's kind of, it's kind of this kind of thing I, I, I won't swear that it's from there but it's, it has the vibe the turkey city lexicon is named after the turkey city workshop in austin texas itself modeled after the milford system of a workshop in milford pennsylvania in which all participants bring a sci-fi or fantasy story to be read and critiqued by everyone in the group extruded fantasy product doesn't appear in the lexicon but it does include some useful phrases like Roger's disease, the ludicrous overuse of far-fetched adjectives piled into a festering, fungal, tenebrous, troglodytic, Icarus, leprous, synonymic heap. Hand-waving, a now widespread term meaning to distract the reader from a logical flaw or plot hole, and the squid on the mantelpiece, which describes how some fantastic plot devices, like a giant squid, are too big to be left on the mantelpiece Chekhov style. See the episode notes for a link to the full lexicon. Yeah, okay. Normal, normal I swear that this is, you know, that definitely sounds like a Pratchettism, you know, because one, one of the things I love about Pratchett, um, and this is a bit of a digression, but have you, have you ever watched the Neil Gaiman Masterclass on writing? No, I, I definitely want to, but I have not seen it yet. It's fantastic, but one of my favourite bits of it is he's talking about writing humour and writing good omens with Pratchett. And one of the things that Pratchett did is come up with terms for things that they didn't have terms for. Um, so he would, ha- you know, he- and he would be like, you know, okay, so what this book needs is a figgin, which is a joke where it's like, you know, we're going to cut his figgin and you can play it again and again and again. And as the book progresses, it will come to an end point and you will reveal that it's really a cake. Or this joke is going to be a sherbet lemon, which is from a scene in Good Omens where the protagonist, Adam, is going to sleep and is eating a sherbet lemon and thinking about nuclear reactors. And nearby the nuclear reactor, they come in and they're like, our reactor's gone, but we're still getting energy that seems to be coming from this sherbet lemon, which is a one-off kind of joke that you do once and it's, it's kind of there to give people a giggle. And so Pratchett comes up with terms and it's a fat, like, it, it's kind of one of those things where it was like, oh, A, those are brilliant. But B, you can do that. Like these things that you see in writing that you're like, that's a really useful thing. I can come up with a term with it. It's incredible because once you've got a term for it, it's a thing that you start seeing everywhere. So just because no one has, has noticed it and given a word for it to have that, this kind of personal lexicon 
where you can turn to it and go, oh, this is a thing that, you know, you know, I need to do this in this kind of scene and have a word for it is amazing. So I wouldn't swear that extruded fantasy product isn't a pragmatism. Hmm. You just say it's used by readers, but I, I don't know that they would, but maybe they would. I don't know. I, I certainly will use it now <laughs> because it describes the kind of book that I have tried to read and not enjoyed. It, it describes books I've tried to write and not enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair. That's fair. I think the other thing about what you were saying just now, though, about those terms uh, is you can learn those. Like, often there is jargon for that sort of stuff, but it, it can be quite difficult to get into a circle where you're going to learn that jargon, like so, either because it's just difficult to get it in with the crowd that uses it, or it's kind of guarded by the people who have it because they're like, oh, we're professionals and we don't share that information with other people. So once you get into I think it's incredibly freeing to have that idea that you just make up your own term. <laughs> it's fine. And if later on you find out that, oh, actually, a lot of comedians already have a term for that. They call it shelving or that's a callback or whatever. That's fine. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, I call that a sherbet lemon. And like, <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Okay. You already know what the idea is. That's fantastic. So I love that. Hmm. One of the things I love about this, though, is also when Pratchett went big, it was always really, really interesting because there would then be this generation of fantasy authors that came after him that wanted to be Terry Pratchett. Like, they didn't want to write Lord of the Rings. They wanted to write Discworld. And you had extruded fantasy comedy product. So, and it, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of this really heartbreaking thing because one of the things that's really quite unique about Pratchett, if someone comes to you and says, I really love Terry Pratchett and I've read it all, who do you send them to? Yeah, this is a big problem that we have on this podcast, right? Who do you send them to? <laughs> He is a genre unto himself. Terry Pratchett readers, like the saying, the saying in publishing is Terry Pratchett readers do not want more comedic fantasy. They want more Terry Pratchett. And there's a very yeah. small group of writers that you can say that about. Even Neil Gaiman, who is so closely tied to Pratchett in a lot of ways in terms of his career, he's like, you like, you, you like Neil Gaiman? This is who you go and read next. You know, these are books that are slightly Gaiman-esque, but there's such a small group of books that are even similar to what Terry Pratchett does, that it's really hard to kind of move readers to another space where they're going to see people, they're going to enjoy yeah. people like him. How do you think we can articulate what that is about him that that people have failed to capture? Because I know I I thought I wanted more comic fantasy, you know, and I tried. I read, in, in particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, if I saw a thing that was a sci-fi or a fantasy book and it, you know, said it was funny, I gave it a crack and most of them were not good. <laughs> Like, um, or at least not my cup of tea. And I think it was that the sense of humor was, for most of them, it was the problem I think I can identify is that the sense of humor was really broad in a way that, you know, Pratchett has jokes that appeal to a lot of people, but most of his jokes are very clever, or at least they have a level on which they're very clever, mixed in, you know, with some very stupid jokes as well. But there is a, a cleverness to it that is accessible. It's not a cleverness that relies on you being, you know, an intellectual or an academic or having read, you know, a thousand books. It's clever in a, in a kind of very accessible way, which is kind of what I think is unique about him. But I don't know, that might be, maybe I've got my rose-tinted glasses on there. I don't know. What do you think it is? I've probably got a grumpy answer, which is not like, I'm worried that I'm going to sound mean in some ways, but like every good author sort of puts themselves on the page. Like it's an extension of themselves, even if they're not writing characters that are doing things that they'd do or thinking things that they'd think. It's an extension of your personality in some way. And his books seem very much like him on the page laid out very clearly. And so what makes his books unique is what made him unique. And I think he was actually just a particularly unique individual in the way that he thought and saw the world and was also mm -hmm. willing to articulate it. And that comes through in his work 
and nothing is the same because there isn't any writer with that particular collection of experiences, anger, intelligence, wit, and output. Like, there's people with all those individual ingredients, but in him they're put together in a particularly special way that I just don't think is replicable easily because it's not simply following a formula. And I'm not saying that that's what other authors are doing. I'm just saying that it's his personality and that's why you can't have something that's Terry Pratchett-esque because it's just him on the page. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think you could ever nail it down to one thing. Like it's Hmm. so many layered and interconnected things. I mean, one of the things is Pratchett's humor is incredibly dense. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you will go back and read 10 15 years after you originally read it and just go, Oh my God, that's the joke in that name. You know, and because you've seen, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because you've seen that, you then go like, you know, I've been reading Pratchett for 20 odd years and I still, every time I sit down to read the first two books, I'm like, is there a pun that I'm missing in two flower? Cause I haven't figured it out yet, but it feels like it should be because there are so many puns elsewhere. And it's just like, it's the thing that I'm always going back and trying to figure out because so there's just layer after layer after layer after layer there. But it's also beyond the first two books, Pratchett is not actually interested in writing fantasy. Like once he had created the Discworld, the the Discworld is fantastic. It is steeped in fantasy and borrows from the conventions of fantasy. But Mm. large chunks of what he's doing is kind of playing with the science fiction writer's toolkit of what happens if I introduce this technology to a setting? What happens if I take a close look at this social convention and make this adjustment? What happens? You know, what if, what if, what if? And that drives a lot of things. But at the same time, he's not just relying on that. You'll you'll get that for a couple of books and then he'll switch it up and do something else because he was interested in so many different things and angry about so many different things. So there's this kind of dense layering there. And I think even within that, you know, fantasy works best when you take it seriously. And one of the mistakes that a lot of fantasy comedies made is they did not take it seriously. They went for pastiche rather than this is a serious world in which serious things happen that happen to be funny. You know, they, they were winking to, they were winking at the audience going, Oh, uh, you know, isn't this great? I'm being, I'm being quite witty here. And he's like, well, I don't want you to tell me you're witty. I want you to be witty and let me follow along. It's Sharknado 3 all over again. Sharknado 3 all I want to feel smart for noticing the comedy, not have the comedy pointed out to me and going, oh, yeah, you're doing a thing. Yeah. There's an author that I read who I was like, oh, maybe this is the next Terry Pratchett. Maybe this is it. And at the time when I first read those books, I quite enjoyed them. Um, They're by an author named uh, Andrew Harmon. But they all have really punny titles. The first one's called The Sorcerer's Appendix, and that gives you a pretty good idea of what they're all like. But those books, like, I'd never gone back and read them again because they're just, there's no substance underneath the jokes. Like, there's a lot of very silly and some quite funny gags, but that's all that's holding them together. Like, the plot is pretty cookie cutter. I, I remember there being a few clever moments, but there's just not as much substance underneath. He's not taking it as seriously as Pratchett is asking other writers to take fantasy seriously here. And I think, you know, taking comedy seriously is a really important part of writing good comedy as well. I think it works on both levels. Some of the specific advice I just want to call out in this, because there's some great stuff in here, because you can boil it down to just sort of like a handful of things, because this is a a fairly short piece, and we'll get on to the longer one about reading 
fantasy in a second, but use regular language. Like he specifically says, don't say thee and thou, like that makes it impenetrable and sound ridiculous. Uh, Yeah, Roth. (laughs) He waxes Roth. Nobody actually says that. Probably no one ever said that in real life, (laughs) ever. Rooted in reality, basically, and take it seriously. But also read widely. So not just within fantasy, as in he actually just says, don't read any extruded fantasy products. <laughs> don't read it. Avoid it if you can. Um, but read other kinds of fantasy and read other stuff that's not fantasy, which is, I think, just good advice for creative work in general. Like don't have one niche of creative work be your inspiration. Like we say this to people wanting to make video games all the time. If you want to make video games, don't just play video games. Read books, watch films, read comic books, go to an art gallery. Like the more different things go into your brain and influence what you're interested in and what you want to do, the better product you're going to make. Because if you just read extruded fantasy products, then the only book you're capable of writing is another extruded fantasy product in the same way that if all you do is play video games, you can only make video games that feel like all the other video games. And so there's that. And then I guess the other thing, the other, the line that I really liked that I think was so good is fantasy does not absolve you from all the basic responsibilities of a writer. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> like just because there's dragons and swords and magic and stuff doesn't mean you can get away with not having characters that actually have motivations and debts and emotions and relationships, you know. And you see this in the EFP books where the protagonist is always, oh, my parents were killed at a young age. I'm a lone wolf. And you're like, yes, that means you're a blank slate who's a dick and you don't have any connections to any other people or any empathy or emotions and you're the worst. (laughs) Why do I want to read a book about the 700th one of those guys? They don't need a personality. They've got a sword. Well, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like Conan has got more personality than that guy, you know? Conan's sword um, has more personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in an essay that's so full of good bits of advice, I particularly like that one. Oh, and the line, apply logic in places where it wasn't intended to exist, which I think if there's any line it's that fantastic. sort of sums up a strong part of what makes Pratchett books Pratchett books, <laughs> that is one of them, particularly for Discworld. But yeah, I thought that was mm. that was brilliant, genius. The reading outside the genre one, I think, is really interesting because if you look at the breadth of the disc world, so much of that is only really feasible because he reads outside his genre. Like the Guard series is very much like Terry Pratchett going. So, how do I do a police procedural in the disc world and doing all the police procedural kind of things while still being fantasy and still doing? Yeah, you know, like he very quickly moved away from that quest structure which mm-hmm. kind of guides that kind of Tolkien-esque fantasy. But I should stress, like, you know, there is great Tolkien-esque fantasy that came after Tolkien. This idea that all the stories that are big epic quest stories are, are terrible is not necessarily true. There are great epic stories out there. But really the question he's asking is, what, is, what are you bringing to these kinds of familiar structures and these kinds of familiar genres or subgenres that is going to make them feel fresh and new? And part of the way you do that as a writer mm. is by reading broadly and finding those kind of other structures and other approaches to story that you can gradually file off the, ser- the serial numbers and restructure them into the genre that you love. Yeah, absolutely. Now, that piece is pretty short, Notes from a Successful Fantasy Author. And I guess that kind of makes sense that it's shorter than the next one, Let There Be Dragons, because there are a lot more readers than there are writers. <laughs> or so we hope. Otherwise... As an industry, writing is in real trouble. But um, And also dragons are presumably, like most dragons, not swamp dragons, are bigger than most authors. 
<laughs> That's true. <laughs> One would hope. One would hope. This is Let There Be Dragons from the bookseller. We, uh, this is, uh, I found this quite interesting. This is a piece about reading fantasy, but it's aimed at book industry people because this was a speech given at a booksellers association conference and it was published in their trade magazine, the bookseller in 1993. Uh, I just want to add something quickly there because it says it was read at their annual dinner in Torquay in 1993. And I think it adds a little something. If you imagine this happening in the dining room of Faulty Towers. <laughs> Uh, oh dear. Yep. 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 Don't mention the dragons or, or <laughs> such nonsense. Yes. Because yeah. that's my main reference point for Torquay, so I couldn't help but imagine that while reading it. Uh, yes. I well, I remember I, there's a Torquay in Victoria. It's not, I don't think, much like Torquay in wherever Torquay is. Is it in Spain? I want to say Spain. It's in England, isn't it? Is it in England? It's yeah. just like, yeah, okay. It's like, it's it's like, like Cornwall or something, yeah. Right. I never had that context. It's not like a fantasy book. There's no map at the start of an episode of Faulty Towers explaining where it is. Well, maybe in the rebooted one there will be. <laughs> oh, no. Look, I think I think we'll get back. We, we might have cause to bring that up again in a moment because some of the stuff in this maybe touches on some of the same issues that John Cleese likes to worry himself with these days. Mm. But this is basically, if you wanted to nutshell this piece, it's a defense, not just of fantasy as a genre, but more specifically of fantasy as a genre that it is appropriate and excellent for children to read, which I think all three of us here and probably you listener would totally agree with. <laughs> I feel like there's very <laughs> few people listening to this podcast who are like, fantasy? No, I can't read that. Um, that would be weird. You've made a weird choice if that's the case <laughs> to listen to Pratchett. Uh but yeah, and um, and he starts off by talking about the first book he read by choice, which was Wind in the Willows. I mean, when I say he read it by choice, he didn't like go to a bookshelf and pick it out himself. He was handed it, but he read it because it was like, oh, this sounds like it might be good. And then he reread it many times. And when I say that we might have cause to touch on what John Cleese worries himself with, he is now, mm. you know, sort of an anti-woke um, free speech warrior sort of person on occasion, which is unfortunate for those of us who otherwise quite liked him and looked up to him. But there is a passage that I just want to touch on here before we move on, because it's quite early on in the piece where he talks about, and I know he's being quite tongue in cheek. I want to unpack this a little bit, but he says, I know now, of course, that The Wind in the Willows is totally the wrong kind of book for children. There's only one female character and she's a washerwoman. No attempt is made to explain the social conditioning and lack of proper housing that makes stoats and weasels act the way they do, etc., etc." It's important, I think, if you're reading this in the year 2023 and you don't have any context for 1993, 30 years ago, people's attitude to what would then have been called political correctness, it sounds similar to what people say about, you know, being woke these days. But there was an angle of political correctness that was, you just can't say the wrong words rather than we need to not do harm. And I think that's been the evolution in that sort of train of thought Whereas now nobody seriously says you can't have this book because it has this word in it. Uh, although having said that, there's <laughs> the, the Roald recent Dahl Roald Dahl controversy. <laughs> I that- was like, quite famously, there are people who say you cannot have that it's word. It's true. Hmm. But that, that's not you can't have those words. That is commercial stakeholders protecting their assets. You know, the mm. Roald Dahl estate yeah. got sold to Netflix. Netflix is sitting there going, like, we don't want these books sort of floating around with these terms in there if we're about to monetize them and turn them into an endless stream of TV series and streaming products. 
Like there is a, a commercial decision being made there. It's not mm. a an ethical decision. No. In case you don't know what we're talking about, on the 19th of February, 2023, Puffin and the Roald Dahl Story Company, which was bought by Netflix in 2020 and holds the rights to all of Dahl's works, announced they would be publishing new revised editions of many of Dahl's books. The companies had spent three years working with sensitivity readers to go through the books, making hundreds of changes to remove derogatory words and make them more accessible and inclusive. While there's no denying Dahl used racist and sexist stereotypes in some of his work and moved from anti-Israeli criticism to anti-Semitism in his own comments, even some fairly lefty commenters felt the changes went too far and the public outcry was immediate and loud. Just four days later, the publishers announced they would also be publishing the Roald Dahl Classic Collection, a selection of his books which were unaltered, leading some to speculate the whole thing was a publicity stunt. But we'd encourage you to go and read what some of the changes are and make up your own mind. The point that I want to make is that I think that the context and the things that Pratchett is saying, it's very, it would be very easy, I think, to read that paragraph with 2023 glasses on and go, oh no, he's part of the anti-work brigade. And there are other things that he said around this time, in particular about arguments he had with publishers about some of the stuff in the Johnny books that you could also see in that light. But I think in actual fact, he wasn't like that at all. What he was saying was, you don't want me to write a book that has this particular word in it. I'm telling you, kids need to read a book with that word in it so that they can understand it. And you're like, yeah. And this is kind of what he was saying about fantasy in this essay more broadly, is that Mm. fantasy brings ideas to you that are a much broader collection of ideas than you're going to get in most other kinds of fiction and, by extension, most other kinds of books. And that's going to lead to all kinds of great things for your brain. I mean, that's kind of the nutshell version of this whole essay. But he goes into the nitty gritty of it a bit more and sort of talks about why it's so great. And I said, do you think at the time in 1993, do you think the the booksellers needed convincing of this? Or do you think they were on side with this already and they were into it? I mean, I feel like it was perhaps just because it was a speech, just a little thing to try and get people to laugh at the beginning of your talk so that they ease into the the more serious like he still got jokes throughout it but like you got to just go hard with with a funny early on so oh, people yeah. come along on the ride with you and i think the fact that this started out as a speech is important context yeah 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 well i meant the whole i meant the whole thing but i i take your oh. point too that this bit about about the wind and the willows uh this non-serious criticism of what people might say about it it's, yeah, absolutely an icebreaker for this speech. Yeah, totally. I, I think you do still don't have this conversation because we still live in a world in which there are people who rule lines between literature and popular. Mm. We don't see it about fantasy quite as much, but... Or not fantasy specifically, anyway. How many directors and celebrities in the last decade can you think of that have come out and said, well, you know, the Marvel movies are kind of okay, but they're not really cinema anymore. It's a new iteration of a conversation that's been going on for centuries. This idea, this very modernist idea that there is a type of art that is improving and intellectual and we should be driving people towards it because it will transform their lives. And, you know, let's be really clear, it is the type of art that is primarily aimed at an audience that is very white, very middle middle to upper class, um, very invested in maintaining a status quo in which they're at the top of the pile. Mm -hmm. And then there are the kinds of art that the other people enjoy. 
and you know, yeah. there is always something slightly wrong with it. This divide exists everywhere, and it's perpetrated by both sides. Like every year around the point where festivals start announcing their guest lists. I need to remember to take a break from being online because otherwise I get in very long arguments with genre authors about why writers festivals are not representing genre the way that they would like genre to be represented. At the same time, lots of writers are, you know, hiss, curse those literary writers that they don't get to have the fun of the genre people and they're not doing all this constant like People are writing literary fiction because they enjoy literary fiction. Science fiction and fantasy writers are writing this genre because they enjoy it. Romance writers are writing that genre because they enjoy it. But there's a long history of tearing down another art form in order to make you all seem important. And hmm. when I ran a multi-genre convention, one of the big things we really needed to reinforce as part of the culture was that's not part of the culture. All of these genres are valid. You don't get to be a science fiction writer walking into this space and going, yeah, well, science fiction is obviously a more intelligent blah, blah, blah genre than romance. Well, like, A, don't, because romance writers will school you on every aspect of the business um, faster than you would believe. Like, you know, they are so on top of it. Their response to being the genre that everyone kind of looked down on was like, we are going to be the most organized and professional people on the planet. Whereas science fiction writers come kind of like, I learned to do this at my local science fiction con, and I'm basically just a big fan. You're like, yeah, our training has been very different. If I'm going to learn from someone, I'm going to the romance author. But it's 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 there. Like this idea that we tear down and build up by placing ourselves into opposition, it's still there. Like that idea that fantasy is not good for you is still floating around. Hmm. It comes out against Marvel movies. It comes out against books. It comes, you know, we don't. It's less predominant than it was. But it's still there. You know, you still need to be having iterations of the argument. And it's frustratingly common. My favorite one is, you know, there are people who absolutely love the Game of Thrones television show, but would not be caught dead reading the novels because they don't read fantasy. I <laughs> just kind of like... Yeah, wow. It's, it's got dragons still. Like, <laughs> there are names yeah. with apostrophes yeah. in the middle. Like, it's fantasy. It's, it's as fantasy as they get. No, but it's complex. Like, it's like, yeah, so it's a book. <laughs> yeah. If you're not inside a genre, you don't know the complexities of it. You know, you talk to mm. someone, you talk yeah. to someone outside of fantasy and they're like, what, what makes fantasy look like dragons and swords and da da da? And like, but that's not the entirety of fantasy. That's a very broad gloss. Whereas once you're inside it, it's like, I don't like the epic fantasy. I like this. So you have a much more nuanced idea of what's going, what the subgenres are and everything else, but that's invisible from the outside. Yeah. And everything's like that. You know, like people who don't play video games think it's all like blowing stuff up and killing people. And you're like, you've not played Journey, have you? You should. You should play Journey. You should play Journey. You should play Space Team. You should play Lovers in Dangerous Space Time. You should play all these games that are not like that. Or it's like death metal or just metal music. There's like a thousand different subgenres. <laughs> and like, if you don't listen to any of them, you won't know about any of the others anyway. So, yeah, there's always a secret depth to things that are popular that you're not into. And I think it's important. I think one of the best lessons you can learn, and it's sort of, and this is not what this essay is about, but one of the best lessons you can learn is just to go, you know what? There's stuff that I don't know about. It's probably great. <laughs> and I'm just going to have to let it go rather than be like, I'm going to shit on that because I don't have time to investigate it. And I just like the things I like. And if I shit on it, I don't have to worry about maybe the fact that I'm missing out on something amazing. <laughs> I think that's partly where it comes from. Mm. 
to get back to this essay, he talks about, yeah, he has his icebreaker about the wind and the willows, but then he kind of lays out, to start with, his points about why it's good. One of which is just kids will actually want to read fantasy, because that's what, that's what they want to read. And in my experience also, it's what they want to write, as I was saying earlier. But most fiction is fantasy anyway, <laughs> which is a, a point he makes in various essays. Like, it's in a lot of the parts of this book, actually. A lot of the times when he's writing about fiction and fantasy, he makes this point. You know, like, <laughs> Agatha Christie is fiction, is, is fantasy <laughs> fiction, right? No no actual crime works that way. Like, And, and, it's, and it's great. Like, it, it's, it's true. But he also acknowledges in this one that I know what you mean, though, when you say fantasy. Right. You mean science fiction and fantasy. You mean the speculative fiction. He doesn't use that term actually ever, but he kind of does almost. He almost uses yeah. it. And he also says, you know, look, a lot of it is shit, but, you know, then you can say that about all kinds of fiction. <laughs> like, it's not, not unique to fantasy writing. <laughs> and I thought that was a great sort of a great way to intro it. It's like it's important and kids will read it. It's, it's good stuff. And he also complains. <laughs> this is one of my favorite things because it always gets me to. He complains that, like, look, people say- it's not fantasy just to suit them. Kind of like you were just talking about Game of Thrones and like, oh, it's, you know, the TV show, it's not really fantasy, is it? It's more a political thriller. It just happens <laughs> to have dragons realism. in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, it's not fantasy. It's magical realism. You know, that's, it's fantasy. <laughs> I mean, so it's a particular subgenre of fantasy, but still. <laughs> you know? There's this weird snootiness about it, but yeah. I, I really like the section he had about the morals. I feel like, oh, the morals of it are not good because I think, like, they think everyone's just running around chopping heads off and sort of kicking them into fields. I don't, I don't know, like, what's this, like, impression? <laughs> Maybe there is, like, I, I'd probably read that. But he's right that there is a lot of, like, wholesomeness in there as well. Like, it's good and there's morals and it's not just murders. But not just any old morals, though. You know, he talks about it being the strict morality of the fairy tale, which is very true of a lot of fantasy you know, this very clearly delineated good versus evil, and you know who's who. I mean, in bad fantasy, your extruded fantasy product, it's because there's a dark lord, and they're called the dark lord, and they wear black armor, and you can never see their eyes, <laughs> or if you can, they glow red or something. You know, it's very, very on the surface. But actually, usually you can tell who's good and evil, because the evil people do horrible evil things. It's about what they're doing in most fantasy that's great. And I mean, and that extends to, you know, non-traditional fantasy, like your Agatha Christie stuff as well. Like crime fiction is like that. The criminals are criminals, not because they're breaking a specific law, but because they're awful people who are doing awful things. I mean, you have the flip side of that, where the people who are trying to stop them are the good guys and are therefore justified in doing whatever they want. And that's a whole sort of thing about propaganda we don't need to get into again right now. But, you know, so there are downsides to this dichotomy as well. But it's true, you know, you know who's good and who's bad in these things. And that's that's a very clear morality that doesn't exist in the real world. But it is helpful, you know, when you're given these examples of these are selfish and awful ways to act. And sure, you know, it's a fantasy dark lord doing it, but you can tell they're wrong. it's wrong and it's not okay. And the people who are good are selfless. You know, they're helping other people. They're doing what's right, even when it's not easy. Like, and those are very obvious Maybe they don't get very deep into the ethics of what is right and wrong, but, you know, they give you a good model for some basic ideas about how to behave, just like a fairy tale does. It's great. It's good stuff for kids. And the thing I love about this is this is the man that gave us Vimes and Rincewind. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He's not afraid to interrogate that as an idea. He's perfectly willing to kind of go, you know, this is a perception of the genre. 
And I think that's worth noting. Like he's talking very much about an exterior view of fantasy um, where mm. that, you know, that idea of it's a genre that doesn't interrogate its morality is not entirely accurate. It's most high profile historical examples have been built this way, but huge numbers of people have come to fantasy and just gone, you know, I want to interrogate this idea of morality and heroism within the fantasy genre and had built really, really complex models of morality, really, really complex decisions within that space. But one of the things that's really important, genre is an experience, you know, mm -hmm. um, your vision of what a fantasy is when you've read one fantasy book is very different to what your vision of what fantasy is after 300 fantasy books. You know, mm -hmm. And it's a, it's an ever-moving target because someone does something in fantasy and just go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And then suddenly a dozen writers are playing with the same kind of tool set. So it moves around a bit. So in a lot of, like, again, the audience matters here. Like you're talking to booksellers who some of them, not necessarily all of them, but some of them, are presumably going to be like, we sell the fantasy stuff because it sells like romance. It's a thing that you sell because it gives people a reason to come into the shop, but it's not necessarily the thing that you read and the thing that you want to recommend and what you think you got into the business of book selling for. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, an evolving art form, like, like all good art forms. It doesn't stay static and everyone adds something to the pile. <laughs> so to speak. That makes it sound very haphazard. <laughs> I'm sorry. They add to the pile of fantasy. No, but it's true. It totally is. Like, the audience an author has will do more to determine where their book gets filed than anything else. <laughs> Margaret Atwood yeah. can write science fiction novel after science fiction novel, and she's always going to be in the literary section because that's the readership they've cultivated. That's the readership she's selling into. And a science fiction fantasy author like China Evil can win the Hugo for what's essentially a police procedural because... There is one slight speculative element into it, and that's where his readership is, and it's a fantastic novel. It's always, always slippery. This idea that you can create a taxonomy of this is what the genre is, as soon as you do it, it's, it's wrong, because someone will go, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this? And it's all tied together yeah. through this experiential chain. I mean, any kind of tropes or touchstones that you identify, they're going to find their way into other genres anyway. You know, if TV tropes have taught us nothing else, it's that, <laughs> it's that the same tropes exist in every genre across the universe. <laughs> like, none of them are exclusive to anything. Um, look, we should move on, but I, just before we finish up with this, I also do like the bit about hope. And this is something that he touches on because he sometimes I remember there was a great response I read, and I can't remember where it was. I think it might have been on one of the news groups, actually. But when I think it was Nightwatch came out, people complained about it being really dark. And he, he did not like that description of it at all. And he hit back and said, it's not dark. Bad things happen, but it ends well, right? There's hope and there's light because people work it out. And they succeed. Like the, the good guys triumph, essentially. And yes, bad things can happen. It can be grim. It can be dangerous. It can feel like things aren't going to work out, but you don't leave people there. That's what dark is in fiction. That was his real conviction about that. And he kind of talks about that here as well, you know, where the, there's the, you've got to slay the vampire. You've got to um, stop the aliens. You've got to fix the terrible environmental threat because there has to be hope, even if it's, as he says, a grim, thin hope, like an Arthurian sword at sunset. Which, ooh, what a great phrase. Yeah, I, I think that is something that's really in his writing as well is that that hope is always present in, in one way or another. 
he also talks about the importance of playfulness in humans, which is something very close to my heart as someone who's worked in the space of games and, and play for a long time. But he sort of says that this is the difference between us and animals. And he's had various sort of iterations on this idea over the years. I think the where the rising ape meets the falling angel speech in Hogfather is a little bit along the same lines. But here he's saying, you know, other animals, they play when they're young, they grow up and they grow out of that and they don't want to do it anymore, which I don't think is quite true. And I wouldn't have expected from someone who owns a cat. But anyway, um, <laughs> but what he also says there is that humans don't do that. We always want to play. We always want to stick our fingers in the electrical socket of the universe and see what happens and that's what makes us human. You know, that's what drives us on. And that's why fantasy is so important because it does that mentally for us without us having to do it physically in the real world. And I just, I really loved that sentiment. I thought that was really great. Mm. That, look, there's so many, so many good things in here. I mean, he talks about the stuff that he learned about only because it turned up in a fantasy story. I mean, there's, there's heaps. And look, we'll probably come back to it a bit when we get to questions, but we should move on. Because we do have two last pieces to talk about. And here we, we change tack. We're not talking about. We, well, we kind of are actually. And, and, and Peter, I haven't mentioned this, but you chose these. Like when I asked you to come on, I said, look, we want to do some from this section. Which ones are you interested in doing? We sort of had a long list, which we narrowed down. <laughs> and you said, oh, I would love to talk about the Neil Gaiman parts. And I'm like, you know what? We should, because until you had mentioned them to me, I hadn't really thought about how much they do tie in to the writing mm. about genre and to writing itself. One is a piece Pratchett wrote about Neil Gaiman for the convention booklet at an American science fiction convention where Neil was going to be the guest of honor. Pratchett was not there. <laughs> it was just like, I'm writing this for the con book. And I don't think he says what circumstances brought that about, but he does say in other books that, you know, he just knows that as part of the whole thing of being a, a genre author is you go to conventions and you write things for their books. Like it's just a, th- it's just part of the whole experience. So probably it was something like that and someone just asked him to do it. <laughs> he said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Neil's going to be there. Great. I'd love to write about Neil. And I think he sets the tone for this piece when very near the start, he says, Neil's not a genius. He's better than a genius. <laughs> Which, I mean, I hope, I hope I have a great friend who I've collaborated with, hint, hint, Liz, who one day says something as nice <laughs> as that <laughs> about yeah. me. No, there's no pressure for you to do that. But uh, I would absolutely say something as nice as that. I feel like. Again, so these are two very beautiful companion pieces because it's like two men who clearly very much respect one another, writing the truth they feel about one another. And the vibe is very different, but the affection is very clear. Like it's, it's clear yeah. that they both know each other. Like you, they've seen into each other's souls and neither of them are offending one another. It's almost like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's beautifully done in a way that's honest and rare. Because, like, no one is blowing smoke up anyone else's butt, but everyone's just, like, pulling out all the things that actually make them respect one another and what makes their friendship and collaboration so strong and their respect so strong. So, yeah, I'd absolutely write something as glowing as this about you, Ben. And I would oh, absolutely no. expect you to write something about as grumpy as I say. <laughs> from the forward. <laughs> like about me just silently sweating like while getting angry and angry about something that's my own fault. Like I feel like that. <laughs> I feel like now the question has been raised, which one of us is the Terry and which one of us is the Neil? <laughs> it's in this duo. But that, let's not go there though, because of course I there are three we, of we us. We don't need here. To, to answer that. It's, well that's true. We don't we don't need to answer that. But yeah, what a what a great piece this is. Because it's, it is, it is an ode to a friend, but not just a friend who you love very much, but a friend for whom you have an immense professional respect as well. 
Mm. And just the way he talks about his craft. He uses this metaphor of the conjurer. So, he, he talks about how he's not a wizard, because a wizard just waves his hands and magic happens. A conjurer, by which he means a stage magician, has to learn and work and spend hours and hours watching it. And I know, I think both of us, and possibly, I don't know, Peter, if you're the sort of person who falls in this bucket as well, but we know a lot of magicians, <laughs> uh, probably too many magicians. And it's like, we know a normal amount of magicians for, for like the two of us. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. That makes sense. Um, but this is, it rings so true. You know, you, you watch people doing it. You spend hours and hours learning it and putting in all this effort. I mean, I, one of the things I've learned from the tiny amount of magic that I've been involved with as a performer is one of the secrets of it. One of the ways you make it work is you just spend way more effort than anyone would ever imagine you spending on a thing that lasts five seconds. Mm-hmm. And he sort of uses this as a metaphor to describe Neil Gaiman's craft and how he's amazing at this. And he'll write something and everyone will go, oh, wow, amazing. And the, the writers who are reading it will go, oh, yes, I see what he's done there. Mm-hmm. But still, that's a very good, <laughs> uh, very good way to do it. And there's some nice visuals as well, just of the passage of time, which is, you know, quite, quite fun. And the hat. Yes. And he's also just, he just tells some personal stories about how they met. And my favorite bit of this is probably, when he's talking about, let me tell you about the weirdness. And he just relates a couple of really short anecdotes about yeah. some really weird shit that happened around Neil Gaiman. And you're like, of course, because he's clearly actually like from the Fey realm and this weird shit, like doves turning up out of nowhere or you meet spider. I mean, stuff that he doesn't even explain. Doesn't explain. You know? I was like, the spider woman. Okay, he'll elaborate on that. And then he just doesn't. And I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> Yeah, just weird stuff. It's just great. Just great. The kind of stuff you say about your friends, you know. <laughs> and then also just talking about the way their relationship has evolved and they got to a point where, you know, one of them would just come to the other with a problem and now they're on sort of an equal level where the other one would just go, you just need to sit down and have a chat about this. <laughs> Let's do it. And they just help each other out. And as we know from, you know, other stories, Pratchett was absolutely the sort of person who, if he had a problem with something he was writing, he'd just phone someone up and ask them what time of day or night it was for either of them uh, and get them to answer the question and then hang up. Uh, This kind of guy he was. And, yeah, Neil clearly had his sort of uh, equivalent to go back. (laughs) But I think maybe one of the biggest things that he says is how he feels that Neil Gaiman's influence on comics is clearly as big as Tolkien's influence on fantasy novels. I don't know if that's 100% true. I think his influence on some kinds of comics is absolutely as big. I don't know that he necessarily had an immense impact on superhero comics, for example. Maybe a little bit, but absolutely comics in general and what comics are capable of, for sure. I enjoy comics, but I feel like I have not read enough of a cross-section to be able to give a an informed answer, which is very politician of me, but I don't feel I'm in a spot to give a response that is helpful. What do you think, Peter? You've read a lot of comic books, right? I have read a lot of comics. I do think you can make an argument that Gaiman, not necessarily on his own, but certainly within a context of there was a wave of authors who emerged Mm. at the same time, of which he was the most prominent and visible did, I think he has had that kind of impact on even superhero comics. It's just not the way you necessarily think. I remember reading comic books in the 80s and 90s, and they came in two versions. One, the story was very self-contained within the issue because the issue was disposable, 
and then it moved into mm-hmm. well okay this story just keeps going and 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 you keep you keep sort of flowing through yeah. and then somewhere around the point where Sandman and you know Alan Moore and all these kind of English writers started bringing a different sensibility in you had this sense that comics had an arc this story would run from here to here and then it would stop and you know you may hit a reset button and move to a different kind of space but there is this kind of influence there certainly he broke open what you could do with comics like yeah absolutely i had an english teacher in year 12 who was a semi professional writer on top of being an english teacher and very much against fantasy against comics and everything else and there was a assignment we had to do we needed to put together a 20-page collage representing who we are and what we were interested in and everything else. And I remember giving him, I didn't want to rip rip apart my comics. I was like, here's my comic, and here are these three pages that I think are representative. It was Gaiman's Death, The High Cost of Living. And I know you're going to hate it, but please just read those three pages and just assume that I ripped them apart. And went away, didn't think about it, came back two weeks later, and he's kind of like, so A, you did really well on your assignment. B, is there another couple of issues for this comic book series? Can I, can I, can I, you know, yes. What this teacher had yeah. thought comics could do was not what was on the page. And all of a sudden it was just kind of this expansion of what, you know, that his, his vision of what the genre is expanded. And he was deeply invested and wanted yeah. to see more. In that sort of sense, Gaiman brought people to comics that were not there in the same way that Tolkien brought people to fantasy who were not there. It made comics a cultural touchstone in a way they hadn't been before and broadened the audience in a way that hadn't existed before. Yeah, definitely. And I think also a big thing was the way he wrote dialogue in the comics. I yeah. think there are other people, like you say, like Alan Moore being another a big one that I would think of. I mean, I don't think you'd have people like Kieran Gillen writing today um, if if he didn't have, you know, Neil Gaiman and, and Alan Moore and all those people back then in the 90s. But he, it's, yeah, it's had a profound effect on, on what comics are a scene is capable of doing and the kind of stories that we take seriously. And I think that's partly, you know, a, it's a different kind of taking it seriously. Like, I think comics did take themselves seriously. Like, you know, even in the silliest of Batman comics, Batman is worried that the villain is going to hurt people and the stakes are real to the characters. But Salmon was different. It was serious in a different way. And so were some of the other comics coming out around that time. You've turned me around on that. You cannot imagine the Sandman selling snack cakes in a mini comic in the ads pages. No, no, <laughs> no, but you can, you can imagine death hosting a comic explaining sex education to teenagers, which can, she did, yes. and it was great. So this is a beautiful piece. Oh, and it ends with a lovely sort of how great is Coraline? What a great horror for kids. Incredible. Um, also, Neil's really nice. Here's some personal stuff about him. He looks really young and he doesn't like mornings. And also <laughs> you should totally get him to sign your old copy of Good Omens. He loves that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he really does love that because yeah. I got him to sign my one of those. <laughs> he did love it. He was like, this is great. Why, why wouldn't you love that? It'd yeah. be amazing to see like something that you had created that had been like read and loved so much that it was literally falling to pieces and they're bringing that to you to sign. Like I, I can't imagine a world in which you wouldn't love that no matter what your personality. Yeah, yeah you'd have to be dead inside, I think. <laughs> My favorite thing about this piece is like Gaiman and Pratchett are both writers with very, very clearly defined public personas. 
and I, I don't mean that in a necessarily conceived marketing term, but they are, they have figured out how they want to present themselves to their fans. Um, yeah. But Neil Gaiman's common complaint for, for a couple of years was that no one assumed that he was funny. They just kind of assumed that in Good Omens, Terry Pratchett wrote the funny bits and Neil Gaiman wrote all the creepy demon bits and, you know, that they weren't trade, you know, the jokes were all Terry. And I think you can sort of see that at work here. Like if you look at the way Pratchett is playing into that persona. But the thing that I think often gets overlooked is that neither of them, and even in all the pieces they've talked about, they're talking about the power of fiction. And when they write about writing, they write about the experience of being an author. They very rarely talk directly about craft. And that's a really interesting Mm. thing because it means that they both have been positioned in this way in which they're kind of, you know, Gaiman is the sorcerer and the warlock who comes out and just kind of creates these magical lands out of nowhere. And Terry Pratchett is the magical elf who, you know, creates these delightful things. And in doing so, it's really easy to overlook the level of craft they both bring to the table and the, the kind of meticulousness yeah. they build stories with, because it's just, it's so not a part of the way, like even when they're referring to one another as people who work extraordinarily hard, I actually think the the description of Gaiman as a conjurer is a really interesting one, because even though it suggests that there is work and craft to what he's doing, it's still mystery. Like, you know, it's still, you're never going yeah. to see behind the curtain it's just, you know, you're just only ever going to see the results. He's concealing that craft from the audience. And in the rare moments where they actually let slip and talk about craft in a, in a real meaningful way, that's just kind of, there's this moment where you just go, oh, that's amazing. Like the way in which you think about story, why are you not talking about this more often? Like it's just the thing that I always crave and I always kind of, like whenever I go into these collections, I'm always looking around the edges like this one line that I'm going to highlight is a thing that I can take away and steal and use in a, in a story later. Yeah. Yeah, just the, the bits between. Yeah. That kind of brings us to the forward, which we're discussing last. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Classic <laughs> weird style. But Neil Gaiman's forward to the book, which, I mean, is quite short. And you should, look, listen, if you haven't read this book and you haven't read any of these essays, we do recommend it. Like, there's just some great stuff in here. But this is, I mean, it's one of the most... The third part of this book is really about sort of Pratchett getting very angry about things. It's called Days of Rage, I mean, to start with. (laughs) And that's kind of where Neil's coming from with this introduction, where he basically has a couple of things to say. One is, I really love Terry Pratchett. Let me tell you a story about, you know, when we hung out together. But also, you think he's like some jolly old elf who makes these uh, fun stories. No, no, no. He's a very angry person. And that anger is what drives his writing. And I think it felt like the first time you read this, I think for a lot of people, it takes you by surprise because it's such at odds with the public persona of Terry Pratchett, who, you know, I mean, he can be a bit tetchy. You see him at conventions, you see him on a panel or whatever. He's never tetchy with like his audience. Like he's, but you know, every now and then he'll get asked a question and be like, well, you know, he just has a bit of a huff before he answers. He's like, what a stupid question on the inside, but on the outside, he's like, well, let's talk about that. Although, you know, as time went on, he would actually say out loud, <laughs> what a stupid question. But I think for a lot of us, this was like a, ah. Oh. But then as soon as you started to think about it, certainly this was my experience, I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course he is. Of course mm. he is. I mean, the obvious one is to talk about Sam Vimes, who his anger is a, is on the page. It's in the text. But so many of his characters are driven by that. And not just the characters, but the narratives themselves. Rincewind is railing against how stupid the fantasy world is that he lives in. Susan is always railing against the stupidity of the education system and how people treat children and uh, how death treats other people. It's in so many of the best characters and the best writing that he's done. 
and it makes sense. But it is also quite a, a bittersweet piece. He knows his friend is going to die quite soon. I mean, this was written in 2014, in the middle of the year. Pratchett only lived about another six or seven months. There's a story in the biography Rob Wilkins talks about when Neil sent this in for them to read, and he read it to Terry's wife, Lynn, and he was, like, upset because he got to the line where he says, I rage at the imminent loss of my friend, and he sort of broke down in tears. But both Terry and Lynn were like, yeah, they had other things that they were worried about in it. They didn't see that as a problem. Like, Mm. Terry was like, I don't think that story about us being late to the radio station quite happened the way Neil says it did. (laughs) And Lynn was like, well, I guess guess he can be a bit grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Love it. Um, But it is, like, it's such a beautiful piece of writing about another person. I really Mm. enjoyed this, if that's the right word. Yeah, it's honest. It's a punch to the gut in a lot of places, but it also comes from knowing someone so well, not only that you know the things that you can put in it, but that you know that you can say them aloud and that's not going to impact on the relationship with them or the people who love them. So I think it's like multiple levels to that. Yeah. And he's including in that Terry's fans. So we're going to read this when it's published in the book. He's like, I think you need to know this about my friend, this person who you also love, but you don't know him the way I do. I want to tell you something important about him before he's gone while I still have this chance. Mm. Um, And he echoed a lot of these things in the things he said at the memorial service, in a lot of the interviews that he did after Pratchett died. Like, he he said a lot of these things again. You know, this was a big theme for him about how he thought about Terry Pratchett. So, you know, as well as him being his mate, my mate Terry, as, uh, as Neil called him. So it's really beautiful. And just what a beautiful friendship as well. Yeah. Now, look, we don't have a lot of time, though, so we should get into some questions about these. But just before we do, are there any, like, little snippets of a great quote or a favourite bit that we haven't quite got to that anyone wants to pull out? I mean, it's hard because, as one of our listeners said, some of these essays are very, very quotable. (laughs) Like, there's so many good things in them. I already said the toenails one, which is my favourite, so I think I'm good. (laughs) Yeah, I think I've said a few of mine. (laughs) I am less about the quote and more about the things. I'm just like, the idea of Terry Pratchett's anger, I think, is the thing for me because it's, it is mm. part of that bittersweet wrap up, but it's also something like it's almost a gift because as we're approaching sort of the end of Terry Pratchett's life, Neil Gaiman comes along and says this thing that recontextualizes your relationship with every Discord book. And so you can go back mm. and reread and going, okay, so Terry Pratchett's an angry guy. And then you reread them and they're a completely new experience after that. And that was sort of one of the things I love so much about this. I originally read this in the collection of Neil Gaiman's nonfiction before I saw it here. And that sense of just like, oh, that's really transformative for me. And it was, it changed my relationship with all those books in a way that I, I absolutely needed to sort of have at that time. So it was, it was quite a sad thing that was coming. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, look, let's get into some questions then. Uh, so first question comes from Ian Banks via Discord. In all these pieces about writing, there's a lot of respect and frustration from Pratchett about how he is perceived as a writer and what fans do with stories. He clearly felt a great responsibility towards his fans, but do you think he may have felt an increased frustration in later life about the, quote, public life of an author? It's mm, an interesting question. Mm. One of the things I've watched a few times recently because it was relevant to some questions I was trying to answer was the interview he did with previous guest on this podcast, Michael Williams, which I think was in about 2012, 2013. So it was near the end of his life. And he was talking about the books and so on. 
And you can see there kind of what I was talking about before, you know, when Michael asks a question and it's in other interviews from around that time as well, when people ask him things that clearly he's been asked like one too many times or he's just not interested in answering, he just says it, <laughs> you know, like he's kind of in a I don't give any fucks kind of stage of his life a little bit there. I think there was that, but I don't think he was ever like, there's there's a lot of evidence that he was really sad that he couldn't keep doing a lot of the things that he got to do as an author. Like when he couldn't go to the last Discworld convention that happened before he died, he was he was in tears. He he was really upset. And I think he really loved a lot of that stuff. Yeah, there were bits of it that he doesn't love. Like there's other there's other things in this book and other places where he rails against how stupid it is the way that you're treated when you're an author on tour. Like a lot of bookshops don't know what to do with you and it's a terrible experience. <laughs> uh, so there was stuff like that that he didn't like. But I think in general- I would tend to agree with that. But within that, there is mm. always a sense of frustration with being an author at any level. The thing, the thing that you get into, like yes. you get into being a writer in order to write. And when you first start out, you're, you, you know, you have to kind of conquer this immediate problem. The world doesn't want you to write. No one is taking you seriously. Everyone tries to interrupt your writing time. No one, you know, you're not publishing anything. So it feels like you're just kind of doing this frivolous thing that's never going to amount to something. And then you start mm. publishing things and people ask you to go out and be an author and you stop being able to spend as much time writing. <laughs> and then as your profile grows, you know, yeah. you spend as much time managing being an author. You write 200,000 words of responses to fan mail every year. You know, that's two books, but it's part of being an author. So that, that kind of tension is always there and it sort of shines through in every author at some point. The other thing is like they're often, these are all, all historic documents. So I often think, you know, like some of the pieces where Terry Pratchett is railing about not being taken as seriously because he's a fantasy writer or a comedy writer are only like five or six years before he's Sir Terry Pratchett. Like, you know, he just kind of leaped, you yeah. know, he's, he's, you know, I am an international treasure now. Like, just deal with it. <laughs> but but you, you're seeing snapshots of time and you don't know what's going on in his life at that particular time. And you don't, you, you know, we're looking back with the benefit of hindsight and seeing how his career developed and what came next. Um, but that, that moment before those changes happen is always frustrating. Hmm. I mean, even if you read the biography, like he's a very private person, so it's all about his professional life. There's very little of what's going on in his personal life. You don't really know why <laughs> he's still irritated, but you do get the sense that the things that went well for him were never quite enough. He's always looking for the next thing. He, ha- he was very driven. Yeah, I, I have a theory that you, like certain people... um myself included, you never achieve all your goals. Your goals just change. <laughs> you will never be satisfied. Is that what we're saying? You're like, you, you achieve this thing. You're like, oh, well, how about that thing? All right. And it's, it's like trying to get to the end of a rainbow. Like, it's not that you don't feel like you've accomplished stuff. It's just like, oh, okay, that's done. But like, what about like, there's just always one step away. Yeah. The, the great yeah. curse of writing is you spend a lot of time leveling up to a better class of problems. And once you're there, you can't <laughs> talk about them. <laughs> Can I have that on a mug, please? <laughs> that is good. There's some, that's some merch for Brain Jar Press. You should put that on a mug. Absolutely. Yeah, I, would, I would spend good money on that. Uh, unless I'm not sure it's one of mine. I think I heard a declarion from a writer named Lee Battersby. Still but, you know, <laughs> once, once you're at that better class of problems, you can't complain publicly about them anymore because you're like, oh, what is me? I have to go and do all this writer stuff and I don't have as much time and all the aspiring writers that are coming after you are just like, shut the hell up. Oh, I wish that was my problem. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't talk like that. Sorry, aspiring writers. 
<laughs> that was very, very rude. This, this is why you listen to writers talking in the bar. That's <laughs> when you hear the useful stuff. Mm-hmm. Our next question comes from Angela via Discord. So both anger and hope are mentioned as key motivators in both Forward and Let There Be Dragons. Do you think Pratchett achieved a balance of both in his writing, and does this contribute to his enduring popularity? I reckon the short answer is yes and yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is not it's not very no, but I think that, I think it's absolutely true. You know, mm. something like I mean, uh, one of the reasons I love his children's writing so much is I think he really pushes that quite far in that like they are often uh, and i hesitate to use the term having talked about how much he didn't like it earlier but they are often some of his darkest stuff like things get the worst the worst things happen in some of those books when you think about you know because of how real the terror is like stuff like truckers or the johnny books or you know the amazing maurice and his educated rodents like some really horrible stuff happens in those books but there is this hope that we're going to make it. We can get to the end. And I, th- I think he really does balance those two things really well. So I would say yes, especially in his children's work, but also in his other writing as well. Yeah, I never walk away from them feeling grim, but I always feel like there's something to think about more deeply that I may not have thought about otherwise, which I think is mm. a hard balance to strike. Yeah. And he kind of says that about Coraline as well in his piece about Neil Gaiman, I think, because I think Neil also does a pretty good line in this too. Although his balance is different and the kind of thing that he does is different, there's that as well. Like in Coraline's, like some of the most horrific stuff you can imagine. Like there's another world where I have a mother whose eyes are buttons uh, and she wants to turn my eyes into buttons and it's kind of nice being there. I'm being bewitched by it. Well, this but is what horrifying. about the weird man in the post box? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then it all works out well in the end because Coraline figures out how to deal with it. Yeah, there's hope there. And stuff like the Graveyard Book and, yeah, all, all a lot of his works. Again, particularly his stuff for younger readers really nails that balance. All right, so we got a lot of great questions from a chew and sneezed via Twitter, and we've covered a few of them already in our discussion, so we're going to ask two of them. So the first one is, what is the one piece of advice that you have relied upon, writing or otherwise, and what is something that you wish you'd been told before you started? And finally, the last question is, do you remember the first book you read? Not the one you had read to you, not had to read, but picked up and read for yourself. Oh, this is both good questions. In fact, all, all of all the uh, questions, were. questions were so good, but we're just going to pick a couple. What bit of advice? You had that one, Liz, about the paragraphs starting with the same word, which is a good, simple sort of rule of thumb that helps you mm. be inventive but not obsess over it. I think that's a good balance. I've got another one, which is if you are bored reading it, your own work, then it's probably not a winner. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not writing it. Sometimes you can get really bored writing your own thing, but like it's more like if you put it aside, you come back and it's not, it feels wrong, like a bit stale, like you're doing it just for a contest or just for an audience that doesn't quite exist, then mm. it's probably not right and it needs some other element put into it. Like to me, your first audience is you. And if you're not enjoying it, then it needs something. That's good. I actually have two that I keep coming back to. One is the, the thing that I wish I'd known as like a young 17 year old writer is that my career would not be built on one book. Like I was firmly in that idea of I will have this great idea for a book and I will write it and I will submit it to a publisher and I'll get to be Rick Castle jetting around the world, um, solving <laughs> mysteries and, you know, being fated as a millionaire. And it, it was like, it took me nearly a decade and a half for someone to go, okay, no, if you want to be a writer, here's what you're going to do. You can just kind of produce a book and then produce another book and another book and another book and another book. And somewhere 10, 15, 20 books down the line, you'll have a career. You know, and not giving up until you hit that point is a really big thing. 
Um, in terms of craft, one thing I keep coming back to is some advice that was given to me by the romance writer, Anna Campbell, who said that if you ever want to show a connection between two characters, like you want to show that these two people are destined to be in love, even if they uh, hate each other at the beginning of the book, the most important thing to do is to give them a scene where they laugh together. Because our, our sense of humor is enormously idiosyncratic and there's no faster way to show the two people are compatible and on the same wavelength than to have them find the same thing funny. And it's one of those pieces of advice, which once I knew it, I started to see it being used everywhere as this, as this shorthand for connecting characters, like in and out of romance novels. And I use it all the time. That's really good. That's right up there with if you wanted the audience to like a character, make them good at what they do, <laughs> which I don't remember where I heard that or who wrote it, but it's like, it, it rings true. Uh, which I don't think is mine. I don't, I don't know what mine is. I feel like mine would probably be something about comedy. There's one that I don't remember exactly where I got it from, but I sort of learned that a good joke or, or a better joke is one where you really cut away everything you don't need and the joke still works. On the other one, and again, I don't remember where I learned this, is that in general terms, the more specific you are, the funnier the thing will be. So if you're telling a joke about a car, that might be funny. But if you tell a joke about a 1927 Ford, whatever, that's probably going to be funnier, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's akin to Pratchett's advice about taking fantasy seriously, because by putting that specificity in, you are making it more real. And so yeah. then the joke becomes a thing. Yeah, there's probably lots of little comedy ones that I could talk about, like learning about the rule of threes and all that kind of stuff. But a lot, I think those two are the ones that I remind myself of. And the one for writing, I'll, I'll slip this in because it's really quick, is uh, read your writing out loud. Mm, actually, yeah, filing all of these away. Because, you know, that you'll know if it sounds unnatural, if it comes out of your mouth and you're like, this is not a sentence anyone should have to read. <laughs> Even better, get someone else to read your writing to you because they don't mentally insert the pauses that you will. And you will <laughs> definitely notice when your sentences are running yeah. too long. Yeah. If you, and if you're writing scripts, do a table read. It'll <laughs> blow your mind. I, I was given that advice quite early on and I found it really helpful. I was reading an article to myself in bits and pieces in my early freelance career on a summer day in my share house in Melbourne. I'd done it like four times as I rewrote things and I just heard a window in the next share house slam shut. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that experience recently. I kept thinking there were people having a big argument in the houses near me when I had the window open. And I figured out the other day, no, wait a minute, I'm listening to the cadence of the way they're speaking and the fact that they stop arguing every now and then and have a giggle. No, they're rehearsing a play or something. <laughs> this is clearly <laughs> scripted dialogue. Uh, it, was a, it was a good moment because I was suddenly less worried about my neighbours. Uh, it was good. All right. First book? Yeah, first book. I think I know what mine is. If you want, I'll, I'll go first yeah, if you're still thinking. Um, there may have been other ones before this, but the earliest one I know for sure was like an abridged version in a tiny little sort of weird paperback format with illustrations of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This is the earliest one I remember. And I read it so many times. <laughs> I thought it was the most amazing thing ever to the point where when I read the full unabridged English language translation of it as an adult, I realized to abridge it, really what they'd done is just taken out about 4,000 lists of different kinds of fish that Professor Aranax is talking about as he looks out the window of the submarine. Um, <laughs> But it is, uh, yeah, it gave me a lifelong love of fantasy in the same way, I think, as The Wind in the Willows did for Pratchett. Yeah, I, I wouldn't swear they're the first books that I read, but they're definitely the books that gave me that idea of the fizz 
that Pratchett talks about. Um, mm-hmm. And it's Enid Blyton's Children of Cherry Tree Farm and Mr. Galliano's Circus. I couldn't swear which one I read first. I know I read them very, very close together, but they were definitely the first books that I read and reread and the first books I stayed up all night reading, you know, doing that thing where you sneak, you know, close the door and make sure your parents can't see that you've got the light on. And I'm just <laughs> going to keep reading until I see the end. Of, yes. I, I can see the end of this story. I, I, I distinctly remember reading those books and I was very, very young, feeling the excitement of them as an itch on the bottom of my feet. It was a, it was a real physical enjoyment of them. Like, this is what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Like, this is it. <laughs> whatever it is, whatever it is yeah. that's making me feel this, I want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I also can't remember my first one. Uh, I have two answers that are going to be very short, but my grandmother used to always send me books for Christmases and birthdays, and she started with, in a Blyton book, she'd send me like omnibus ones and she'd mail them across from England. And I read all of them like voraciously because I'm, I was very, like people would give me books and I'd be like, that's nice. And then it sits on the shelf forever. But all the ones she sent me were winners. It's like, she could be like, okay, I know what she's going to like. Mm-hmm. And she sent me this one, the five find outers and dog series, which is not one of the more famous ones, but it is exactly what it is on the label. It's five <laughs> kids and a dog who find <laughs> things out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> genius name what do, what do celebrities know I don't know but let's find out um, but <laughs> there was a lot of sort of like little spy craft tricks in there so I read it over and over again because it was one of them who loved like putting on disguises and stuff and, and I read all of the Inner ones she sent me so I think that's one of the ones that it was formative in my love of reading. And the other thing is that my mom used to just take me to the libraries on, on the weekend that would go to a library and she'd just sort of let me loose on it while she read a book somewhere else and I could just borrow whatever I wanted to within limits. And that's how I found Diana Wynne Jones's books, just wandering around the shelves going, what, what looks cool, what looks battered, what looks interesting. And I ended up reading all of those. So Diana Wynne Jones and Enid Blyton, strange combination, but it works. Great choices. Great choices, everybody. Um, and great questions. Yeah, and great writing advice and questions. Yeah, just, we're, just everything just was great. great. Everything's, everything was great. But that, that does bring us to the end of the episode. So I do have to say thank you, Peter, so much for joining us. This has been great. What an amazing discussion. You are both a, a writer and a publisher. You run Brain Jar Press. And if you were going to recommend a book that either you've written or that you're publishing that you think our listeners who are all Terry Pratchett fans might enjoy, do you have one that you would recommend that they could look out for? Uh, definitely. We actually have a new book that's coming out this week from Tansy Rayner Roberts, which is a collection right. of her short fantasy fiction inspired by Greek myth. It's called Gorgons Deserve Nice Things. It's, you know... <laughs> It's probably got enough in common with Pratchett that if you're a Pratchett fan, there'll be something in there that you're going to love. And if you've enjoyed reading about writers writing about writing, um, <laughs> we have a whole line, a uh, chapbook series that is capturing some of the great writing about writing. It's called Writer Chaps, and it features a host of great Australian science fiction and fantasy writers, including authors like Sean Williams, Angela Slatter, Tanzirian Roberts, Karen Warren, and many more. So we're about nine books into that. And it's it's very much in the vein of the essays and articles we've been looking at today. Oh, that sounds amazing. All right. Some friends of the podcast in there as well. <laughs> yeah. And if people want to find out more about Brain Jar Press, where should they go on the internet to find out more? They should go to www.brainjarpress, as one word, .com. Wow. Could have guessed that. <laughs> but that's great. I'm glad that it's very straightforward. Thank you so much once again for joining us. 
Thanks for having me. And for those selections as well. Yeah. It was my absolute pleasure. Lister, thank you for joining us as well. And we'll, of course, be back next month with not a piece of short fiction and not some nonfiction. We're actually going to read. I mean, this might seem like a shocking tactic uh, to some Mm. of you, but we're going to read an actual book. Uh, We're going to be (laughs) revisiting an old friend. Liz, do you want to tell Alistair what we're going to be reading next month? Yeah, so we're going to be coming back around to Tiffany Aching, who's growing up very quickly, as we discuss I Shall Wear Midnight with returning guest author Amy Kaufman. Yes, it'd be lovely to have Amy back on. We haven't had her on for such a long time. We talked about truckers, seems like a thousand years ago. Uh, It was a very long time. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was a pandemic ago. Um, Please do send us your questions for the fourth Tiffany Aching book, I Shall Wear Midnight, using the hashtag Pratchett66 on social media, or you can email us at chat at pratchettpodcast.com. And look, just a quick reminder too, um, we've got a couple of bonus episodes coming up, one which we'll tell you about, one which we won't, uh, because who knows when it'll happen and it might be a surprise. But we will be doing our annual glorious 25th of May special episode. So if you are one of our Eek Tier subscribers listening to this, hello, thank you very much. And thank you all our other subscribers too. That means you get to decide what one of the things we're going to talk about is. So you should get your thinking caps on, start thinking about that because we would need you to send us that by the end of April. So yes, we hope to hear from you very soon. Look, that's about it from us. And until next time, may your fury carry you into the future with a sense of hope. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Peter M. Ball. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton. We're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones at pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat65. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.